2: Good evening, Cherries fans, and for tonight's An Evening With, it's not a player, it's a man who's been part of the club for around 20 years, he's been part of the youth setup up from the very, very beginning and has helped make it what it is today. Tonight, I'm joined by Joe Roach. Good evening, Joe, welcome to uh, Cherries in All Departments. Yeah, good evening, Matt.
3: Nice for you to join us. Good um, yeah. Thank you for um, you know, inviting me on. It's uh, delighted.
2: Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. Um, well, if we could start off with the first question a little bit about yourself. Um, where did you grow up and how did you get into football as a
3: youngster? Uh, born in Liverpool, uh, grew up in Anfield, probably about uh, 500 metres from the spying cop. Oh. Um, stayed in Anfield till I was about 11 and then we moved. Uh, oh. to a place called Norris Green. So from football point of view, it, it was an era where everyone everyone played outside, everyone was outside. You were kicked out of the house at you know if it was holidays, you're out the door at nine o'clock in the morning and you go back in at nine o'clock at night. So spend a huge time play, playing football on the pitches, local pitches, fields for want of a better word. Um so that's where it started, you know, I'd be playing uh twenty v twenty maybe or twenty v sixteen to be uh lads of 23 playing and you know I, i'd be like uh 12 11 7 8 whatever it might have been so it was all mixed up learned a lot of ways of navigating difficult situations physically obviously i'm not a not a tall guy and i wasn't then um never never played for the school uh, i was probably deemed uh, too slight maybe um and but obviously played a lot with friends and then we we had a when I moved to Norris Green um, after eleven, the area where I live, we have quite a lot of prominent footballers live there. Steve copple lived around the corner. Um, Chris Lawley, who played for Liverpool. Jerry Byrne uh, lived lived on on the estate, um, and obviously we used to play together. Uh, they obviously moved on later in life to sort of uh, well known teams. Um, so it was a very competitive area. Um, So that's where I started at 14, I uh, basically uh, left home unannounced, for want of a better word, and moved to relatives in Cumbria. Uh, And then I started playing up there, Um, brought a bit of the Liverpool sort of steel, if you like, to that area, lovely part of the world at the time, Barrow and Furnace, and um, then started playing at 16 uh, in men's football. For uh Vickers who were in the northwest league and uh i you know did quite well uh as a winger at the time so that was really the roots of uh, my introduction to football and a little bit of how how it morphed a little bit up to us uh, sort of 16, 16 years of age
2: ah, okay well who who were your footballing heroes as you were growing up and
3: majority of them would be liverpool players obviously um you know uh, Ian saint john uh Peter Thompson, uh, then Kenny's Old Leash, Graeme Souness. Uh, Phil Thompson was a, a, a real hero of mine because he was a winger as well. Then we got John Barnes, Jimmy Johnson, who played for Celtic, who was a jinky. They called him jinky. I think he was a jinky winger. I think in, he got sort of, I think it was in the early 2000s, You know, Celtic's greatest ever player as it was at the time. Uh, George Best was obviously... Prominent at that time, so and Alan Hansen, uh, you know, defensively, I, I thought he was a really good player on the ball. Um, so very much centered around, you know, Liverpool. I was a very strong Liverpool support. Didn't really bother about anybody else, really, other than those odd individuals I mentioned.
2: Yeah, um, is it true that you were
3: at Liverpool Football Club when you were young? No, it, it's uh, not not a truth. Uh, what happened was when I was playing for Vickers, I was scoring quite a lot of goals because I used to get in behind people. I was very very quick. Uh, I had a good delivery, good finish, and I started scoring goals. And someone came up to me after a game and sort of asked me for the details, heard my accent. um, So I gave them the details. And then a few weeks later, I got a letter from um, Tom Saunders, who is the youth development officer at uh, Liverpool, inviting me in for a fortnight trial. Um, What happened, basically, is that I just declined... The, the offer, for want a better word, and the back story behind that. Um, I obviously left home at 14, no qualifications. My cousin, who I stayed with uh, for a while, uh, was employed at the local shipyard, Vickers Shipyard, uh, which was quite a big industry at the time. Um, he was a foreman, and, and so he got me through the back door as an apprentice. So when the letter came in, I, I sort of spoke to him and said, look, you know, I've got this opportunity to go to uh, Liverpool for two weeks. And he said, well, it's not really my call. We'll have to speak to the apprenticeship uh, manager. Um, so he spoke to him and he said, look, if you want to go and pursue football, then fine. He said, but we've shortcut your entry here. And uh, I'm afraid if you decide to go, then the, the apprenticeship will be you know, null and void. I was aware of some people who have gone to Liverpool and Everton, um, who were locally? Who were, in my mind, probably better footballers than me, more physically probably capable. Uh, a couple of players didn't get taken on at the time because you know they were they were not the biggest, strongest, and I was far shorter than them. So it was a decision I I took at the time because of my personal uh, situation at the time. And actually, I didn't finish the apprenticeship in the end, and I didn't go to Liverpool. So you know, there's an interesting uh, what if story behind it in both both areas.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um you said well if i've done my research right you are said to have had an outstanding pedigree as a footballer um but how come you didn't play at pro level was it a case of choosing
3: service over football uh, i don't know if I told you i had an outstanding pedigree but um did, did i tell you that <laughs> <laughs> it's actually but
2: it's actually i think that might have come from from an article i was reading on the club website i think
3: yeah no i i yeah i I was i think i was very quick um i think i had a really good delivery that was honed you know playing in the street sort of playing games a lampy as they call it where you'd hit the lamppost from x amount of yards away um you know hitting trees wherever it might be so i had a lot of you know decent accuracy around things. Uh, I wouldn't say it was very technical. I was quite aggressive. Um So there were certain characteristics that, that got me there. I was probably too too aggressive in some ways. And also sometimes I'd lose my head. So I probably wasn't as calm as maybe was needed to play Uh and continue to play. And obviously, you know, I'm five foot four. I say, people say I'm five foot three. So there was always a disadvantage of, of getting into the pro game at that time. I mean, there were, you know, Smaller players playing at the time. Steve Copper wasn't big, arm ball, etc. But they were really, really gifted, um, and really scouting network work in those days was probably not what it is now. Uh, so that's that's a sort of you know the potential, but you know never never sort of thought of myself as a professional football player. I just I just love the game, and took whatever opportunity at whatever whatever level came.
2: Oh, okay. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your background in the military? Um, I believe the British Army, Royal Engineers, is that right? Yeah. Physical Training Corps, which sounds quite interesting.
3: Yeah, uh, yeah I could t- talk about the whole programme about that, to be fair. Um, when, I was in, when I was in the shipyard um, as an apprentice, um, myself and about, I think it was about two or three lads, we, we had the day off during the week and we went for a, a drink in the local... Uh, cafe or pub, maybe. And when the pub shut at lunchtime, we sort of were, we're going to hang around till later on in the evening. So we decided to have a bit of a laugh. And we went into the army careers office, the RAF careers office, and the Navy career office, probably to wind the blokes up in a way. <laughs> and uh, so yeah, we went in, you know, we obviously had whatever chat it was, and we came out, then carried on in the evening. And things weren't going quite well at the time, and I was sort of sitting up. up been sofa surfing from house to house. I was kicked out of one house and went into another one, went into a friend's house, a bit of uncertainty really about what I was going to do. I went back to Liverpool for a short period of time to work in a fabrication company, but I came back. And one day I was sat on my bed and sort of was thinking about where I'm going to go. And then I remembered about the visits to the army careers office. I was quite intrigued in a way. and then I remember I had a, a flyer leaflet in my drawer um, I pulled it out. And the first one was the army one. So I read it and I thought, oh, what's the harm? So I went down to the recruitment office, went in there and, uh, the recruitment guy sort of, you know, said, what do you want? to I'd like to sort of uh, have a chat about, you know, what, what, it, what it is, what, what you do. Didn't have really any idea of it. I, I was never anywhere near the cadets or anything like that. Um, and he said, "Yeah, okay, fine. Give me a bit of background." So, well, you know, I've been in Vickers Shipyard, uh, did a bit of fabrication stuff. Uh, he said, oh, "Do you play sport? What sports do you play?" I said, "Well, I've only ever played football, um, and he, really, and cross country because that's what you did on Friday in school." And he said, "Oh, he said, well, the engineers, Royal Engineers, they do bridge building, they do uh, minefield clearance, demolition, the REME that do uh, the mechanical side of it." And, and some of the engineers hired me. and both of them are really, really prominent uh, football cores that they do really well every year, win the Army Cup, and that might be glove glove fit. So I so, thought, oh, right, okay, so before I know it, I'm signing on in Carlisle and uh, swearing allegiance to, to the Queen. Um, and then I go to uh, Sutton Coalfield, which is an induction and then ends up travelling by train down to Farnborough to join the Royal Engineers training camp at Southwood, which is no longer there. It's moved. And turns up in an army base in the back of a Land Rover. I think there's about five of us in it. We get out the Land Rover and there's a, a big square as I now know it. It was just a big piece of concrete as far as we were. And there's guys doing drill. And uh, you know, we'd had our head shaving at Sutton Coalfield and we got our kit issued there, so we jumped out the Land Rover, have to stand in the line, whatever that looked like, so we didn't know what a line was. And then these guys are marching up and down, and we're sort of trying to not giggle. And uh one of the corporals has stopped this guy on the on the square, and he's got this little pace cane, a wooden cane with a metal bit in the end, and he shoved it up his nose, screaming at him. And he's pushed that far up his nose. He's split his nose and all the blood's run down his face. So I'm going, what have I done? <laughs> anyway, um, what happened, I obviously, in the engineers, did the training, but the corporal on the square, who actually you know, had the cane up this guy's nose, actually was involved in the football team. And we obviously do physical training, do all the other training, uh, how to clear mines and bridge building stuff. And I was played different sports. Um, And when I did the football, I obviously did quite well. And he went, oh, give me a bit of background. So I told him what I'd done, where I'd been, Liverpool, trial. And so I got away with quite a bit of training. Um, Then I finished my training, uh, which I think then was 20-odd weeks, I think, uh, which was horrendous. I hated it. You know, someone just about older than me telling me what to do. Uh, I was making my bed and then they were tipping it on the floor. It was horrendous. I didn't like it. Um, And then I Finished uh, that course of training, and they wanted to keep me uh, in England because I'd got a post into Germany, easily alone. And they said, look, we want to keep it because by then I played a game for the Army youth team on the edge of the Army senior team. And uh, they said, we want to keep it here. We've got two options. Um, One, you go into the MT section, which is the motor transport, um, or, you know, you go in the gymnasium because they were fairly static jobs and they could control those positions if you like so well not really but I don't drive I don't really bother about driving and I said but I love physical you know physical activities and sport to a degree football as it is and I said what you have to do so they said you know you have to pass certain tests so what what they said physical tests obviously you have to do some basic gymnastics I said I've never done a forward roll I don't think other than jumping out of trees and things like that and they said oh you have to do a military swimming test I said I can't swim I'm absolutely petrified of water I said so. Oh, all right. So I elected to go in the gym. Think I'll be all right. Thinking I might, you know, I might swing it or wing it. Sorry. And then uh, I had to go through some basic training, swimming test. I still couldn't complete properly. Um, and then I'd, I would say luck takes its part in life. I suppose. You know, I sort of impressed a couple of people, and and they said, look, we're going to give you a chance. So they sent me on the initial assistant instructor's course at the PT school. And I uh, attended that. It was really, really hard, really hard. Um, I think that was 12 weeks of pure physical training. Uh, there was some aptitude tests, gymnastic tests, for example, you know, handstand, uh, vaulting, uh, cartwheels, backward rolls, forward rolls, uh, one or two other bits and pieces. Not too, too difficult, but for me, I've never done it before. And I got accustomed to that quite well. The swimming one was a big thing for me. But I, I tend to say to the players sometimes or the staff, you know, you only need to impress one person. And I clearly impressed the instructor of my particular group, of which there was 20 in my group. There was five groups in there. So 100, you know, 100 potential ACIs, PTIs. And when we were coming to the last swimming test, uh, which was a 50-metre swim, two-metre red water, you had to jump in the pool. He had his clipboard on the side of the pool looking at every, everybody finishing it and I when I was struggling I was right by the edge of the pool i grab out to the side and then see if he was watching pull my hand away and I could tell he was when he knew I was struggling he was turning his back and I knew he wanted me to achieve and I obviously impressed him and I passed the course I went from that on to the next course um which was even harder uh more selective lesser number and then you had to go back to unit to learn then come back on it so in total it was about two years from the assistant instructors to actually changing my cap badge, as it's called, to the Army Physical Training Cup, um, of which there was six finished. Uh, Only six of quite a large number finished it. uh, And all all those six were adapted to certain specialisms, you know, judo, um, athletics, I would say me as football, if you like. Uh, by that time I'd been playing Army football and combine service football anyway, and I cat badged into the Army Physical Training Corps, um, of which then there was only three hundred an odd worldwide, and the army then was probably a hundred odd thousand uh, and your job basically was go to a unit a regiment and train them in preparation for war and obviously organize sports and uh, coach sports so for me, I, mean, I was qualified in a, a vast number of sports. You know, uh, athletics, track and field, basketball, squash, boxing, judo, a gymnastics coach, having not been able to do gymnastics. I actually got an A gymnastics on my final test to transfer. I became a swimming teacher, having not been able to swim, um, and then I went off and you know toured uh, PT Corps in different different places. My first tour in 1980 was to northern ireland when the troubles were on which was an unbelievable experience for numbers of reasons some of them obvious but you know it was the, the irish people we connected with were, were unbelievable um and and the scots guards I was who were all six foot plus uh and i'm five foot four so we got on like a house on fire so that was a sort of you know that the army, Royal Engineers, Corps. Without going into too much detail, which I can, and and the sports exposure, which I start, which I, I suppose eventually allow me to see sport and football in a different way. You know the benefit of back. I was a basketball coach as well and and uh, uh, organizer, so I could see that the relevance of tactics in basketball and football um, and invasion games. So I was able to take lots of bits and pieces away from that. Um, and I did my coaching courses my first coaching course was, was on in the PT core process. And it was a two week, very intensive every day. And it just transformed my game. I never knew the defenders were the people behind, behind me. I never knew what they did other than they defended and I never defended. I just run forward and it just changed my whole uh, understanding about the defensive side of the game. And it was a great education very early on for me. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't want to digress too far. And then obviously, I had the opportunity to serve in different places around the world, and and serve with some unbelievable people and un- unbelievable regiments and, and the like, and, and do some unbelievable things.
2: Wow! I mean, that's it's really interesting. To I never thought when I was doing the research, I thought it would just be sort of the standard through the army kind of, um, the, you know, the norm,
3: I suppose. But no, no. So, the one thing about the PT Corps is you cannot join. Unlike the RAF and the Navy, I think you cannot join straight into the PT Corps. You have to be cap-badged at another corps, and then you have to then go through a process of actually being an assistant in the gym, go on the selection, go on the advanced course, go on junior probationers, then senior probationers. You know, do lots of things like anatomy and physiology, you know, because we train to either be adventure trainists, outward bound, remedial gymnastics as it used to be called which is physio so we can be a physio or we do the normal you know uh pti thing which is out in the field uh preparing people for operational stuff so it is quite you know different than people's perception
2: oh okay um is it true that you represented some teams in in hong kong and germany
3: yeah 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 um i mean fortunately uh, because of my position, you know, I was then I was responsible for running the gymnasium um, planning the programme for soldiers uh, and some family sort of events, if you like. So I used to do aerobics for, for the wives because we were obviously detached in different places around the globe. So Hong Kong, for example. Um, so well, while I was there, I uh, played for, uh, well, I was training with Bolivar, uh, Tom Hitchens and played for them. Uh, Derek Parlane was over there who was at Glasgow Rangers so I played um, within then, but I didn't get taken on I then went to a club called Paps Haps, which was a newly formed club run by uh, a couple of guys uh, who, who were Irish and it was American but Paps Haps was a, a drink then or it may still be but it was obviously well financed by uh, that company and then there was a, uh, a Captain Dutch Captain, he called himself, who was very wealthy. Who, who basically then developed this team called Morning Star, um, and uh, we played at that level. It was like a professional league out there, uh, and sort of just underneath that. And uh, Morning Star played against Genoa uh, in the South China Stadium, for example. We played over there. Um, I actually got the penalty. Um, and we, we drew one all, but the Italians are very unforgiven. Uh, if I'm honest. <laughs> It was like more like contact karate with a ball, um, <laughs> but yeah, I played over there and then, and then uh, went to Germany later on and played for a team just outside Dusseldorf and, and a team just outside Munching Gladbach. But the thing that really uh, blew my mind away a little bit in Germany now, this is nineteen eighty six, I suppose that was. Is you know we're back in England. You know the, the facilities were not the greatest. You know there's loads of. Uh, or Artificial pitches, if you like, but in every town or village, there seemed to be one of these facilities, so access was great. And you know, the team I train with uh, were waiting to come on, you know, and I'm expecting the previous team that was training there to, you know, leave all the balls for us to train with. No, they took all their stuff away, and then we had all our training kit, equipment was there, the tensions to detail, uh, the coaching was like something I hadn't really explored before. You know, I wanted to run forward, boot the ball forward, and they were like, no, 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 you know, get me to pass it, work in triangles and build up the picture. You know, even as early as that, and it was like, wow. Um, Hong Kong was a totally different story. That was quite ruthless. But, you know, in Hong Kong then, uh, I mean, I think, you know, some of the players that were there were were, were unbelievable. But, yeah, they're the teams I play with in in those two particular. And I played quite a lot of non-league. Decent non-league football uh, in this country.
2: Um, you played in Europe's oldest competition, the Kentish Cup. Is that how you pronounce it?
3: Yeah, yeah. It's the Combined Services, um, which is the uh, the best players from the, the Navy, the Army, and the Air Force. Uh, you know, really at that time, some significant players, if, if I can say, in 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 the Army, Navy, and Air Force in UK. Very good, very good players. who went out to play, you know, Guy Whittingham's and Lee Bradbury's and my... Um, uh God, I can't think of the goal now. Uh He's uh, in Ireland now. Um, oh, God, gone past me. But, yeah, we had we had another lad that was going to get bought out by Borussia Dortmund, but decided to stay in the army because he liked the naffy, uh, his drinks. So, yeah, very good side. But, the yeah, the Kentish Cup, that was a sort of competition. Um, and then... You know, there was obviously other teams involved in there.
2: Is it true that you played against, like, some international sides, like France, Belgium, Holland?
3: Yeah, yeah, they were, it was, well, yeah, France, uh, Belgium, Holland. Sons had to do with career at Tottenham. So, conscription there. So, you know, everyone then, whoever you were, had to go through that process. So, over various stages of the competition being played, there was, you know, some significant players that played in that competition, Michelle, I, I would, Michelle Platini being one. Michelle Platini, uh, Enzo Shifo. Um, oh, who else was there? Uh, I'm trying to think now. Um, yeah, Enzo Shifo, Platini. Um, can't think a couple more. Maybe I can't think Dick or something like that. I think yeah, there was some some, you know, very, very then, you know, high-profile players. I mean, Enzo Schifo, we played in the competition at Olashop, the military stadium, and he'd come off before the end and he was then getting transported to play in the World Cup. So, but he still had, you know, that was obviously going to be weeks and weeks later, but he, yeah. he, he had to play in that because he was, you know, under conscription.
2: Ah. Is there any other superstar players you came to play against during your playing days? Uh,
3: well, there was, there was a few interesting people that, for example, in Hong Kong, um, in Bobby Moore was over there. He was managing a team called Eastern. And he wasn't playing then. He, he was here just one season. Tommy Hutchinson was over there playing uh, at the time. Uh, you know, God bless his soul. Gordon, Gordon McQueen played with when he was over there. Um, Derek Parlane, who played for Rangers. Um, so in terms of like competition-wise out there, and I suppose without trying to think of all the different situations, I think the most prominent one w- was in 2009. I played for England against the rest of the world in the Help for Heroes game at Reading Majestic Stadium. Majestic Stadium. And Paul Gascoigne, uh, Des Walker, Neil Webb, uh, Matt Wright, uh, Chris Woods, the goalkeeper, Andy Cole, uh, Rob Lee was playing in the England side. Uh, in fact, I, Des, I got I came on for Des Walker, so that's my claim to fame. <laughs> and yes, the rest of the world was, well, it was uh, Lothar Matthäus, it was Stefan Freund, uh, Stefan Schwartz, uh, or Tugay. Uh, Toto Schillaci, who was obviously you know some of these guys won the World Cup Euros '96. Uh, Anders Limpar uh, Michael Jokes who was at Redden uh, Ali McCoist. so yeah they all they sort of all we all played in that game you know and the charity was you know, close to my heart I was an, I was an ambassador for the armed forces there with and that was when I was at Bournemouth Football Club so I was very very proud of that. Lee, Lee Pratt, but he was also an ambassador at the time. Uh, didn't get involved in that game. I don't uh, for whatever reasons. I think because he was you know, involved in the stuff. Um, but yeah, they're sort of the the ones that stand out.
2: Mm, that's well, amazing man <laughs> names
3: there that you've just rolled off. Decent um, crowd, yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah definitely. Um, what did your role as um, FA coach educator for the British Army? What did that? What
3: did it, it was actually it was actually called director of coaching. And whilst I was in the army, obviously I played football, played for the, the services, uh, both at you know army level, command service level, and then I started coaching and coaching them. It, it was basically managing the team, but you had a officer as a representative who was the manager. Um, but I obviously picked the side and, and coached them, and we got them in from all over the. You know wherever the army was globally um and then i had some unbelievable coaches that coached me in the army team one one Alf up went on to you know, work for the fa uh you know i can name others were brilliant and they obviously had to then prepare someone else to take over that coaching role so i was obviously uh play for the army at the time i was one of the most highly capped uh players at the time And they said, right, okay, well, you know, you get qualified. I got my uh, full licence, which is the A licence now when I was 24, 25, I think. So I got the qualifications. So we started running courses for service people, um, Army, Navy, Air Force, wherever they were in the world, in all the shop mainly. And the Football Association allowed us to provide those courses for servicemen, you know, given the the disadvantages of being an active service and being able to you know get available for a course so they all would come in and we'd run the basic as it was then prelim course then the advanced course then there was an intermediate course and then there was the, the what they call the full license which is the a license now so i i did those with some um, navy coaches and some RAF coaches and then I, my job then was to coach coaches to coach the teams back in their units back in their regiments um and then when I was getting towards the end of my army career, fortunately for me, again, a little bit of luck. The, the FA were changing their qualifications to UEFA. And so they run what they call a conversion course. So they converted the what was the A licence into the UEFA A licence or the full badge into the UEFA A. So we did the conversion course at Bristol. Um, but I had a chance to sort of uh, I was really well supported by the uh the major who was in charge of army football at the time, uh, bless him, Terry Knight's no longer with us, fantastic guy. And I said, look, you know, we're going to we're gonna run out of legs here, excuse the punt? You know, who's going to be able to, to then put in place these new qualifications if they're not qualified? I said, I've just now got, in fact, I was the, f- this is true, I was the first UEFA uh, A coach in the country. Uh, and that was only because I was fortunate enough to have the flexibility to be viewed by a guy who was at uh, the FA at the time, who subsequently went on to Tottenham, who's now at the FA, who's the technical director at the FA, uh, and he came into my my logbook for want of a better word when he was available. So I got my logbook over the line very quickly. So as you you probably all know the army, but you know when to get to get yourself in front of generals and everything else like that is probably when you're getting a VC or something like that. Uh, but I was able to sort of negotiate meetings with the generals involved in the Army Sports Control Board and presented this proposal about, you know, what is going to happen. If we truly want to keep our, you know, uh, army teams flowing, military teams flowing and then qualify to be able to qualify coaches to go back into their regiments to to coach players, then this is something we need to look at. And they they took their on board and I was employed as the first ever uh, civilian director of coaching in any sport in the armed forces um, and uh, I spent sort of two, I think two, two and a half years um, in that role and I was doing courses courses um, you know uh, wherever the army might be you know Gibraltar Germany Ireland uh, I went to Zimbabwe to take a, a group of 64 Bimb- Zimbabwean School teachers on a coaching course because there was an army, uh, succumbents over there, who were supporting the local uh, local population. So they got me over to do that on behalf of the ZIFA uh, Football Association. So it was it was a fantastic uh, time, uh, an opportunity really to develop coaches into you know coaching and and give my sort of insight into whatever that looked like.
2: Okay, um, how did? your roles and your service within the military? How did that sort of change you as a person? And what do you take from those days that you still use in everyday life?
3: Um, Well, um, the the military, that that time basically made me, I think. Um, You know, I'd I'd had a sort of fairly rocky childhood. Um, You know, my mum was like, you know, unbelievable. Uh, I got a lot of traits from her. You know respect gratitude you know we didn't have a lot didn't have anything really um my dad was quite hard on me you know he basically said i wouldn't when i joined the army i you know, wouldn't wouldn't do it wouldn't make it uh sort of point to prove um uh, and that's why i kept going i think to a degree uh, and i thank him you know he's not with us anymore but and my mum isn't but yeah you know, it made me you know i was a little bit ill-disciplined uh i think i was a good kid and really respectful I always said please, thank yous, but you know I was a kid running on the streets like we all were at that stage of life, at that, that age, in that era. Um, but coming in and, and sort of giving me uh, a, a sense of being and, and sort of uh, the camaraderie and uh, the togetherness uh, and the discipline for sure, uh, the structure. You know, I didn't know it at the time, uh, but there was building blocks that were being made and. Uh, Obviously I had loads of experiences, met some unbelievable people, you know, I bumped into some, a gang of guys the other week who I hadn't seen for 30 years. It was like I'd only seen them yesterday. You, you never lose that bond and and having that connection and respect for people and, and giving people opportunities and support and at the same time, being very hard, being and determined, um, you know, in some ways, it's you know, it's like a young player, at sixteen to eighteen. We're trying to prepare him to be a professional football player. Sixteen to eighteen in the army, we're trying to prepare him for operations, for conflict, for combat. So there's, I think there's certain traits there uh, because they're both difficult in different ways. Uh, certain requirements that you need to to make it. If that's say, if that's the right word, I didn't join the army until I was nineteen. Um, but when I look at In answer your question, when I think back, now when when I got the opportunity to come into Bournemouth, the one thing I didn't want to do is speak about the army because, you know, uh, 2001, you know, I think there was still this sort of, uh, the army did things over here and uh, it wasn't as publicized as as it was later on with Afghanistan and things like that. Uh, You know, I was in Ireland for 18 months, My, my parents didn't know what was going on over there really. The big obvious things happened, you know, but all the little bits that happened, which were not great, you know, were never publicised. You know, mobiles didn't exist, so, um, so when so when I come in, I thought, well, you know, I'm I'm a football coach and I'm coming to a football club. Uh, clearly, there was there was a way of worked. and I thought, right, I'm going to try and work it. I had never coached youth team players or schoolboys in my life. Um, I'd played football, adult football. Uh, I'd had limited exposure to junior football as a player, really. Um and I um, you know, sort of thought, right, okay, I'm gonna approach this in a way, coaching side of it. But I think with the with, with the way it was at Brock and Hurst at the time, um not very long into that period of time, I thought, right, how how am I gonna get these guys to understand what's needed, given all the the variables and, and the things we didn't have. And, and the opportunity they need to go, how can I change what I'm doing for them to change what they're doing, if you like? And I had you know, they were great guys at whatever stage. I'd, 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 I'd go back there, Tom Morrow, uh, to that period of time. I, I, I enjoyed not having things. Um, and I thought, right, OK, I'm going to bring more discipline in. I'm going to be more ruthless. I'm going to get them to take more responsibility. Uh, you know, I... Unfortunately, I, I like go for lying. Uh, he'd never put foot wrong, or I told everybody if there was another person who lied to me, then don't care who you are, um, you, you'll be released. And that happened. Um, and it, it wasn't a whimsical situation, but I look back now and I think, really? That was a bit tough. But uh, I just, at the time, I thought that's what I needed because uh, there was a lot of things that, you know, in, in that programme at the time, that weren't provided, and I had to keep people on track. And I thought I was too soft before, and they take liberty or I'm over the top. I'm going to meet in the middle somewhere. Um, so I brought a lot of, you know, that that sort of army organisation and and some of the you know the activities we did weren't football releases You know, we did basketball and uh, handball stuff because it was the same sorts of things and just varied the program a little bit. Because nowadays we talk about multi skill uh, access for young players, but really. How many clubs do it? I'm not too sure. I just think there was lots to be gained from it. And also the pitches, we only had one of our pitches of Brockner, so half the time they were to water. So, I mean, we do boxing stuff and, uh, you know, we do loads of challenges. And, and really the biggest thing, I think, was breaking, breaking them down is the wrong word, but building that resilience and robustness because that's what they're going to need, especially in the game at that time with the limited opportunities that were in place. So a lot of the army I brought without them understanding and knowing it. Um, and I look back now from honest and go you know maybe I lost a few players along the way being a little bit not, not looking at the individual player that much but if I'm honest you know time was of the essence and that was limited yeah
2: yeah Well, and, and yeah. I think sorry
3: the one thing sorry the one thing at the forefront of all this was, was thinking about my own journey from leaving home to whatever stages there were and going right I need to make These not these players. I need to make these young guys think about a career. I need to prepare them beyond playing football, however long that might be, because it could be five minutes, it could be five years, it could be fifteen years. I need to make them totally focus on the timekeeping, the respect, the hard work, the camaraderie. Um, And the most pleasing thing for me now is when I bump into some of the players, uh, quite a lot of the players from a long time ago. That's what strikes me about them. Forget, you know, what they've done play what You know, when I want to speak to them and, and talk to them. And, you know, it's, it's more fulfilling in many ways for some of the guys who haven't made it and, and have done really well outside of professional football. That is also, for me, success.
2: Mm, yes, it's nice to hear that. Um, joining AFC Bournemouth, um, if we can touch on that. Um, Sean O'Driscoll. Um, who was the previous youth team manager. Um, he had recently succeeded Mel yep. Um, as first team manager. What was the School of Excellence and the youth team system operating like when you joined? Uh, if you
3: don't mind, I'll, I'll just share a little bit of a, a story before that. To yeah, 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 definitely. How I got here. So I, I ended up going to work uh, for Newport Football Club coaching uh, with... Um, a guy called Tony Mount who was a manager of Mason Mount's dad and we run it we started running a college education program um at the same time I was still doing courses and I was doing coaching course of Hampshire FA, and I run a course in Marchwood which was an army establishment so I was able to get in there and use their facilities and unbeknown to me uh well I knew who they were but there was a guy on there that was a Bournemouth football club he, he worked at the community scheme at the time Wayne Smith um And whatever the size of the community scheme was, which was nowhere near what it is now. Um, And going back to the point I make about you only need to sort of uh, connect with one person. When he came back from the course, um, I believe Sean spoke to him and said, how did it go? And he said, oh, he explained what had gone on. I think he spoke quite quite well about the course and about me and about what I was doing, because obviously I introduced myself to the course. And at the time, the youth team had been removed for financial reasons. So there was no youth team. Uh, and then Sean got hold of me Said you know Would you like to come in And have a chat So I, I said Well yeah okay fine And at that time I really wanted to try And get back into I mean obviously I was at Newport Football Club So clearly I wanted to get involved In coaching again uh, I'd moved away from the army Director's job And um, I had aspirations And of of you know Been involved in coaching players So he asked me to come in uh, The ground had been knocked down uh, He wasn't actually there at the time, he'd gone to look at a couple of players. So he left his receptions to apologise. And then we met him again later. And he just explained about what he wanted to do. He said, look, I've heard you're doing this programme. He said, we removed the youth team for these reasons. We haven't got any money. Can you um, can you give us an idea of, you know, anything you can do, given what you've done at Newport? And so, yeah, I could certainly have a think about it. Um, and then I... Explain what I was doing. I actually went to Bournemouth and Poole College, and I went to Brockenhurst College. There was advantages at Brockenhurst, and, and uh, not advantages at Bournemouth and Poole because Brockenhurst was on a rail link, and they had their pitches on site. Uh, I had a chat with a guy there, Neil Flanagan, who was absolutely brilliant. Um, and uh, you know, I can talk a bit about more of that, but that more later. But back to the point you make: centre excellence was you know, a very different beast is now, you know, we had, I think there was about, I think there was about four or five venues, you had people scattering all over the place to, to do coaching sessions. And, you know, we'd, we'd end up being kicked out of a coaching session because we couldn't pay for the facility. And then suddenly trying to tell the parents and, you know, then we'd have to try and get them to realise where they had to go next. And, uh, that's the sort of way it was. And that was no, nothing down to any, any individuals. It was just the way it was operating. Uh, low budget, you know, I think the budget then was probably something like 80k for the, the year so I was imagining what people have been paid and, you know, the guys that, that were involved at in that time, you know, were so dedicated to you know, trying to support the players but it is what it was um, so the centre of excellence was, was sort of that operation um, and I say that the U team wasn't in existence um, you know, I had to coax back a lot of the players who'd just been released in the youth team. And I remember sitting outside Dean Court on the grass at Kings Park with these parents and players saying like, you know, once I'd secured Brock and Earth, this is the vision, you know, and they were like, oh, we've heard this before type thing. And I said, look, you know, this is where we want to go. So I did a coaching session and um, I said, look, you know, look at what we're doing and uh, got a couple of guys down to help me. And uh, yeah, I think they quite liked and bought into what I was saying. Um, but that's sort of the way the organization was at the time and and, and then I had to look at how I was going to then move that forward.
2: So when you first started, I believe if my research is right, you had five, well five jobs really, Um, head of youth, youth team manager, education officer, recruitment and centre of excellence manager.
3: Is that, is that right? Uh, Well there was, there was, I was also the community officer uh, but the okay. community officer was no. The community officer was linked with the education side of it. To be fair, so it was the same sort of thing. So how did I manage that? Well, the, the, the interesting thing was Sean managed to sweet talk me into coming here with his vision. He was so passionate, and uh, as I say going back to what I said before. So okay, fine, and you know I'd arranged to start in in one of them. I think it was the July or the June. And uh, Andrew Dawson was the CEO at the time. He sent me the contract, so it was no brainer um the money wasn't uh you know anywhere near brilliant i wasn't bothered about that and i thought right how am i going to work this out uh and basically sean said this is this is the areas it's actually i've got the job description i've got the contract with all those jobs on it so it wasn't sort of like this is your job by the way you've got to do all these things in the job description it was actually on the contract (laughs) you are blah 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 blah. i'm going right okay so where do i start with this and then when it turned up i say there was no ground it was getting knocked down yeah. I'm in a portal cabin I'm going and I've got like no youth team and I've got we're operating out of five venues sometimes or maybe three if two haven't been closed down Um other st- staff that were at the time were worried about obviously what I was going to be like when I came in so there's that little bit of elements. so I got all the staff together and then I thought right okay um, what I did do is I-, I dipped back into my military background and, and I was never really I left school at 14 didn't have any qualifications and I wasn't well you know, well versed in maths and things like this, so uh, I wasn't thick, but I thought I, I, maths and budgets don't don't appease me, don't please me at all. So there was a guy who was a who was my coach, believe it or not, when I was playing in the army, who was in the army pay corps. He was a qualified coach. You know, he's an A licensed coach as well, Derek Old. He lived local. So I, I asked him would he come in and be the Centre of excellence manager, and he bit my hand off. So he took responsibility for the Centre of excellence. Uh, I retained the other jobs. And then, you know, Wayne Smith and his brother, Danny Smith, were, were great in the community scheme. They had some sort of part-time volunteer people doing the community programme, because obviously we were getting some players from that environment. Um, and then the, I think, I think I'm right at the time, the community changed to, be, to sort of become a trust, I think. So there was more opportunities for them to develop and keep their own budgets flowing. So I thought, right, so I did some interviews for the community officer, um, had some applicants come in, uh, some good guys, uh, a couple of guys, I thought, mm, I'm not too sure whether you're gonna invest in the community scheme. I think you just want to come into a professional club. So I had to weigh that up and then I had the opportunity when I played a game at the 18s, when the, the pro got running, uh, that uh, I'd already bumped into a guy called Steve Cuss, who was a Torquay. So Steve come in, you know, we had an interview, uh, Met, met with met, met with Sean because one thing, Sean was, was really interested in what was going on. And obviously we, we gave uh, Steve the job, him at Wayne and, and Dan and all that. And the rest of his history, you know, at the community scheme, he's done unbelievably well with his team and obviously with the ladies section and, and, and girls section and everything else now and all the other things he does. So, you know, I'm really pleased to have been able to support uh, the community scheme and place Steve in at that time. And, uh, you know, he's totally focused on, on that environment and, and does a terrific job. Um, and as I say, kept the head of youth, kept the uh, youth team uh, role. Um, and sort of that that sort of, you know, give me re- relinquished a few responsibilities. <laughs> I mean, that all, obviously didn't all, all happen in five minutes. So, no.
1: yeah,
3: but yeah I, I had to make sure I tried to do it right. Um, and I say I had some great people still working there who we were working there before who helped me. You know, I, I had Pauline Dyke who was a part-time uh, secretary who was fantastic. She and uh, another lady who, 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 who worked with her, Sophia Bashi, who worked with her in there and they were great because they were sort of support me. I think they were a bit concerned that a bloke from the army was going to come in. Um, but we got on really well and, and Pauline uh, knew everything about everything, rules and and she did part-time. The work she did was unbelievable. So I had a really good strong support mechanism in in her and Sophie. Uh, yeah.
2: So during during those early days, did, did you have any like voluntary help on a regular basis?
3: Uh from well, from staff wise.
2: Um from, from anybody.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh no, yeah, yeah. We had we had uh, again because of the budget and and trying to develop it and you know, trying to give people opportunity, I think people were quite keen to get involved in pro football at a level or certainly center of excellence as it was yeah we had you know nearly all the scouts as they were were volunteers um you know we but we were very very locally based you know so we weren't expecting them to travel all over the place so it was very limited you know sort of uh a strategy type of thing where we, would, where we would where we would go uh we got some coaches coming in young coaches you know sort of uh would come in and say, you know, send us a CV and I say, okay, fine. There's an opportunity. I mean, I always, when I I talk to people now, like even some of the young players who leave us, who want to get involved in coaching, I say, look, a volunteer. Because everyone likes a freebie without being crass. And if you go in and and you present yourself in the right way, um, you know, you never know. And I've got a story around that, which we can maybe talk about later. But, you know, uh, be humble. Uh, and grasp the opportunity because whatever whatever happens with it, you'll learn something, and hopefully it you know goes away, or you know then we can have a look at how you how you apply yourself, and then we can start thinking. Well, okay, we'll, we'll start trying to generate some some income. So yeah, we had volunteers in, in, in different stuff uh, at different times.
2: How well we've briefly touched on it, but how important was Brock Nurse College back
3: in those early days? Oh. Um, it'd be easy to say. If, you, if we'd gone to another, it been. It, if I'm honest, I think just the people there, the principal, and uh, the vice principal, Neil Flanagan, um, you know, we're major investors in trying to get the programme going. You know, they obviously wanted, the, the from an educational point of view, they wanted the kudos of having an attachment to a professional club, you know, for an off come in coming, you know, what's a very programmes you're doing and everything else. But, you know, location-wise, as I say, it was on the train line. Uh, you know none of the players got paid so how are we going to recruit players you know we, we, we don't provide transport we haven't got minibus drivers we haven't got a minibus for want of a better word uh, so the, the train line from Weymouth all the way through to Brockenhurst or from London down to Brockenhurst if anyone was along those lines they could get into the Brockenhurst station and they walk straight out you know they had sports fields which you know, uh, we, we, we were you know needed to have on site ideally, um, although the, the groundsman only attended them probably once every three weeks because it was you know council, council groundsman. so you imagine what the state of them was if it had been raining, uh, but it was great because it was what it was, um, and and the, in some way, the, be, the benefit of it was that near was quite open at the start and said, Look, we need attainment. Uh, to run this program because I then at the time we had an under 17s and an under 19s. That's the way the league was run. So of course I can't run everything. So I'm doing the under 19. Who's going to do the 18 and who's going to assist in between one of those two. So I said, look, I haven't got any staff and the club, you know, weren't going to employ anybody else. So I had to be a bit creative in the conversation. So the college employed two part-time coaches uh, I say part-time in sense of the time, but you know the quality they brought to the table. Mark Kelly, who played for you know Ireland, played for Portsmouth. Uh, he came in with me, you know, no airs and graces. Huey Lewis, who you know was a Portsmouth-based guy, who was a great character, came in. Uh, Jordan Mooney at the time coming to do some part-time physio and some sort of sports science. I could do a lot of the physical because you know Miami physical training core days, and then we had Berry come in. So the programme morphed in terms of, you know, when Mark and, and Hughie moved on, you know, we had a guy called Brian O'Donnell who sadly passed away not long ago, played for Bournemouth, uh, mm-hmm. unbelievable guy, uh, great character, did the 16s, come in with me, Marcus Brown and come in, then uh, Kev Berry come in to do sports science. I had a guy called Tom Bates come in as an intern university student who's now been with... Um, the uh, under twenty one England side, in the psychology. He's done the Olymp- the uh, the, um, the Olympics. He's you know he's to see his growth is unbelievable. Uh, he was a Birmingham Villa, you know. And other people to me have come in doing psychology. So as all these people were able to come in and develop themselves in terms of staff roles and that, and, and you know the club didn't pay for any of that. The only wage they paid was mine, and we were you know then the education becomes so, so important. And that's why I probably spent so much time focused on attainment and making sure, even today, that the guys follow up on the education. I try to suggest to the staff they need to look at the players when they're in those environments because you learn so much more about them from when they're not on the training ground or not playing a game, you know, how they interact with people and how they communicate and everything else. So it was a great base to learn from for the, for the players' point of view, the staff point of view, a bit of insight into them. And then... Over time, the college were able to access the ACE program, which generated a little bit of income. So then, the players were paid, I think, thirty pound a week, and we were able to, from the college, get some uh, travel allowance. So if the lads who then, with the 19s age groups, you know, wanted to get a, a car, if they were, if it was a car or a motorbike, you know, they are able to sort of pay for that, or they could get. Uh, we were able to get rail passes. So I could have give up very early on because it was really difficult. But enjoyable in equal measures and then things morphed and you know we're still we're still being tutored by brockness college today um up until 2011 the players were housed at not housed they were at brockness college you know very few of them if any were in accommodation we had a lad, curtis allen from ireland who was supposed to be the next george best play for ireland he come home we we know to get him accommodation um danny Ings went in accommodation um, we got a fee from him for, for Hampshire A. So the, the college, when you say the value of it, it it's like it, it got us on a, a platform. It got us a base and, it, and we grew with it. And, you know, the college has changed. The personnel, Neil's gone. But, you know, consistently they've supported us over the years. And whenever I have a conversation with them, if you, you hadn't mentioned it, they would come into the conversation. They've been such a pivotal part of what we've done. And when I think of the finance that they've attached to it, Uh, and okay it's indirect from the government nothing else but you look at the finance that people put into the college and support into us and supported it and you know we had the use of the gym obviously the classrooms we had had the the restaurant area the cafe Uh, everything was on site it it was it was uh, we used the sports hall when we could and then we couldn't use the sports hall and sometimes we couldn't use the gym and the one the only downside was was we couldn't train in the afternoons uh, so we missed a lot of training time because the pitchers needed to rest, and there was obviously college teams that needed to come on to it. So the program was quite limited. So I had to try and get as much in as I could. Uh, and sometimes the part time staff couldn't come in. So sometimes it'd be me with 25 people, uh, maybe more sometimes. Uh, but then, you know, you just get on with it. Uh, limited kit, if any. Uh, yeah, it was. Like I say, it was, I, I'm, you can tell probably by the way, in talking. it was just an unbelievable education for me uh, and an opportunity that, you know, I can look back on fondly and go, you know, it probably got us where we are.
2: Mm, absolutely. I mean, it's with things like you just mentioned there with like, lack of kit. Um, did the fundraiser, Cherry Share, contribute to the youth team in any, in, in any way?
3: Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I can't. Yeah. Paul Franks. Yeah. yeah. Paul Franks and some others. I mean, you know, from the buckets to the table outside, what now is the shop for the, the raffle tickets, for yeah. the cards, for the quiz, quiz sheets, uh, cherry quiz, whatever it was. Uh, get a phone call. Joe, what do you need? Uh, and I'm like feeling guilty. I'm going, well, could I get some balls? I mean, you know, we we had 17s and 19s, two teams. And I think if we were lucky, we might have had 12 balls for each group. Uh, you know, cones were getting broken. We had no money, no budget to really replace to a degree. So, yeah, could I have, I've you know, trying to be humble, can I have 20 balls? Anything else? Well, is that all right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got this money. Do you need any cones? So, you know, updates up is when you want something else. And then, you know, it was like, uh, we got some money for a, a minibus. Your minibus was a bit ragged. I went, oh, so we got a minibus from uh, Red Kite. Yeah. I think it was, you know, big red bus with a Bournemouth badge on the side. I think, wow, where are we now? Uh, it fell its MOT about five times, but <laughs> I think it might not even add an MOT. I think I was driving to Exeter and the, the wheels like this. <laughs> um, but yeah, they, they were, they were, and you know what, for me, and, and look, I, 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 I know you're a, a Looking behind you, you know, you're just, you know, fan, diehard fan of the, of the club, and there's going to be one or two people watching this. Maybe you, the fans, but just that from that that process, if that's the right word, the connection with the fans and me understanding the importance of the fan base and and the desire of the fans to try and support, you know, a little a little youth team as much as the first team. And I was just obviously I was just awestruck about how much people were prepared to do. You know, I wasn't here in the days of, um, you know, when they were all. the pavilion they were in? Oh, Winter Gardens, yeah, yeah. The Winter Gardens. I wasn't here then. So if someone read it, they go out a load of fans. You know, want to do this and and you know, it's sort of a news thing and it goes. But when you, when you see that depth of desire, commitment, and it was yeah, it was it was unbelievable. It was brilliant. And you know, anyone watching this, uh, I'm sure there's lots who put their hand in the pocket. Then you know, I can't thank you enough because. As little or as much, you know, that, that you turn up on, on a training day and you open up, you know, a box of footballs that the U team players were like, oh, wow, you know, little stuff meant so much because we had nothing really.
2: Yeah. How, how different things are now, which I'm sure we'll touch on a little bit later. But, um, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um well, is there any players who were involved in any of the, that you've set up that you've had over the years um that didn't really progress on in their career but should have made a career out of the game do
3: you know well this is this is an interesting question because and it's a good question is that i suppose sometimes i feel guilty about talking about the past because you talk about things that you did and therefore you know and obviously i'm of an age now where you know there's a lot of younger people involved in the game and you're trying to make a statement about, well, yeah, well, you, we did this. But, you know, obviously now you you know you know what the academies are like now, probably, you know, the amount of staff and the finance and the facilities and and you've got the under-21 squads now. I mean, the biggest problem we had uh, in, in sort of centre of excellence football at youth level at that time, uh, because the other, sorry, the other thing about Brockenhurst, we weren't allowed to sign any player on a youth contract at Brockenhurst because we come out of the youth programme the yeah. football league wouldn't allow us to re-sign as youth players, so we had to sign as extended players, uh, extended schoolboys. So, yes. what happens there is in the um, the publications for the the amount of players who played in the first team at this stage, we wouldn't have got a lot of players in the, on that paperwork. So, for for example, I think Brett doesn't doesn't re- register or wouldn't do. Um So we we, we sign them to. That, that sort of process. And then the 17s and 19s, I thought, great, because we had a three-year education programme, three-year development programme, three-year training programmes, you know, whatever. So this opportunity was elongated. And then for some reason, the league had a meeting, asked for people like myself to put in what we felt, because they were talking about reducing it to under-18s. Anyone with a football brain in our job, you know, youth development would go, why would you take a year away at that time, there was no 21 football. There was reserve team football. You know, that was that. But some of the players weren't prepared for that, weren't ready for that. And they went down to 18. I think a lot of it was about the finance that was associated with running two teams in youth clubs. Because obviously, you know, football league clubs are not well, you know, stocked with money. So I think it was a case of that, which which was a little bit, I think, narrow-minded, if I'm honest. Uh, I don't mean to upset anybody. But so the reason for that backstory is that we lost a year. And, of course, we have players who played in the first team, you know, one game or were on the bench or play reserve team football. And if we'd have had the 20, under-21s 20 as it is then, I believe we would have had more people come through the system. Uh, you know, I think some of the ex-players that are working with us now remember some of the younger players coming in. They go, oh, well, he wasn't this. But if you look at the training time we had with them, which was limited, um, because you, you know you could only train so many mornings of Brock, couldn't train in the afternoons. Uh, Evan, you think, you know what? It was more about the, the, the attitude, the mentality, determination, and all those things, really, with the players that I was looking at and thinking, you know, there's players here who could do it. You know, we, we had players who played for the first team and then, you know, played one game and then, you know, didn't play again. But, you know, they did, in my opinion, did very well. There's. the the answer to the question I haven't probably answered is that there was lots of players who who could have played and didn't. Um, But that's, there's lots of players now Mm. that we we as youth developers would think, well, why why wouldn't he play? And, and, you know, football's full of opinion at the end of the day. So my opinion may not be the same opinion as someone else who's picking the team. Mm. So that's just the way way it is. Um, But I believe, I believe firmly that there could have been more players progress but some of those players have had a fantastic career in non-league yeah uh, and obviously forge a different career and they're the people i spoke about now that i'm really proud of
2: yeah okay that's great um you also took the reserves um during your time at dean court um did you find this valuable to be able to blend certain youth team players in with first team players
0: Picture the scene. All of your mates around. You've got your McNugget share boxes ready to go. Partner this with your team playing champagne football. Perfect. Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. There's nothing quite like a McDelivery. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com.
3: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, the one uh, what I didn't do before, apologies, I, 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 I sort of, Lost track of it. You know, you're talking about when, when Sean and Peter Grant were in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I jumped over that and talked about how I got in there, which was disrespectful to those two guys. You know, they, they were, for me, uh, brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, i not played professional football. Uh, i played decent non league football. I've come in to sort things out and I've immediately, okay, the staff levels weren't big. You know, we didn't share an office, so it'd been easy for them to sort of, you know, but I was included and felt included in everything from day one. Um, you know, Pete was a great character. Sean was really deep. I've got huge respect for, for, for those two guys. And obviously Richard Kelly come in just after. Um, so I, I gained a lot of knowledge and understanding um, from both of them. Uh, going to the point about the reserve team, uh, I think it was a great opportunity because there was – Like I said, there was a time when the the 19 age group was moved. A lot of the reserve teams we played were more stocked with first-team players than we were. So a lot of the youth team players, you know, like Dannings played uh, reserve team football at 16, and there have been you know lots of others, but as an example. So he learned very quickly um, about, you know, senior football, men's football, if you like. You know, I'll give an example. So we played Swansea uh one so we got absolutely battered 10 I think it was 10 nil and they had some you know uh some really uh, Lee Trump Trum played um uh, and, and, and others and I'm thinking oh my word and and we we had the opportunity to play them again the way the fixtures were probably about three weeks later and we used that game as an example of right this is what first team players and we drew the game on all it was in Wales and it was sort of the same group of players but for them to gain the knowledge and the understanding and, and the access to that game at reserve team level, giving them the opportunity to understand what first team football looks like. Because if you're playing U-team football, you know, that doesn't always happen. So I think it was a great bridge for them to be able to step into, to play. And I say sometimes that the whole U-team, uh, reserve team, was U-team. Uh, and so the level the level went up you know, considerably. And I suppose that's why quite a few of the players who did play in the first team understood a lot more about it. Uh, in that regard, and obviously, I had a lot of a lot of insight into what Sean and Peter and latterly Richard wanted, so I was able to communicate those things succinctly across the table. And, and I think the players would see me connected with those two guys and go, oh, "Right, this guy's involved. And what's going on?" So there's a, there's a little bit more not saying, but they needed buy-in, but a little more belief in me when I was describing stuff and talking about that. I knew what I was talking about based on my interactions with with the manager and the system manager.
2: OK. Um, the club, um, I mean, then and now, um, has always been known to bring good footballers through the uh, youth system and into the first team. Um, for example, Sean uh, would have helped produce names like uh, Eddie Howe, James Hayter, Carl Broadhurst, Carl Fletcher, just to name a couple. Um, did you feel any pressure to keep that trend going? Because at the time, some of those players, for example, like... Eddie Howe and Carl Fletcher were sold on for some big sums of money that sort of kept the club going at the time. Uh,
3: pressure, uh, personal pressure from a coaching point of view, because obviously coaches want to want to show they can coach and they want the outcome to be, you know, I'm going to be competitive, I'm going to try and win a game, and whatever else? We didn't know. I never felt anyone over my shoulder, you know, judging what was going on. I didn't feel it was they were judging the players. I think Sean and Peter were very, very, very realistic because I used to ask about my, what my targets are and everything else. And, you know, I can't speak for him, but I think he would say that, you know, you know, what what is the, I think we've had a chat the other day, you know, is what what's what's the reason for an academy? You know, there's people's different ideas about what it is, but, you know, it's providing an opportunity for people. And if that, that opportunity is about them developing a career uh, outside of football, the opportunity has been achieved. If it's about being successful as a player, has been achieved, but we were very realistic about what, this is what we've got. Um, I didn't feel that I had to produce this numbers of players and, you know, to be fair, in equal measure, there'd be some players I'd put across the table and, and he, he would say quite openly, right, yeah, but will he play in the first team this week? And because of the budget, the, the, cl- the club budget, we couldn't pay anybody extra. So sadly, we weren't even able to take some players on, even if we wanted to, there was no vehicle. So that that was the sort of stringency of it at the time, uh, and the difficulties around it. But then, at the same time, the opportunity to progress and not worry too much about, you know, the, the sort of the safety of the job or whatever else, if that was the case. But now there was no no expectations in that term. He just wanted the thing to grow and just provide an environment for these players to have access to.
2: Okay. Um, you would be seen on a match day on the first team bench alongside Sean and, and Peter, yeah. and later Richard. How did that help you develop as a coach? Uh, being in and around the first team on match days,
3: probably one of the best. I, I thought by that time, director, of coaching, played football on this. I knew, I knew things. You know, I knew how to coach and all that. And there was so there was so many different things that were opened my eyes to. The way Sean and uh, and Peter and Richard approached the game and the, the players and the, the people as we, we call them, the players. And it just really started to make me think a little bit deeper about stuff, little subtle things. Um, you know, giving people responsibility in the game, you know, and 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 the play you'll know better than I do that we had like one stage we had a really youngish first team, and the ability for those players to take responsibility on the pitch and you know, they'd flip a formation. You know, at the time, the players probably used to moan about, oh, we spend, he spends that much time, too much time looking at the opposition. But I think he wanted them to realise the opposition to see, to make sure they looked at what the opposition were doing, to have the ability then to change, to match what the, oppo- the opposition were doing, as opposed to this is what we're doing, this is what we're going to do. And then suddenly the opposition, and then they don't know what they're doing. So they're caught in that catch-22. And the sharing of information, uh the openness, you know, we had we had meetings uh every Friday, little group of us, Sean, Peter or Richard at the time, uh Mike cordroy who was recruitment, and Mark McCadam, who was the the press person at the time, me, Bernie Morton, bless him, you who know, was oh, the kit yeah. man. Um and we used to meet all the time and Sean would do the minutes of the meeting, and then the next week we'd go in the meeting and he'd go right through the minutes again. You know, has this been done? Has that been done? I'm going, wow. You know, attention to detail in, in a different way, in a different era, you know. And, you know, it, and, and and I was enamoured by them as well because, like, Sean used to walk around the stadium on, on a, you know, on, on a match night or else or else and make sure the lights turned off, say the electricity, because there was, you know, it's little things, like, right? you're thinking, you know, and it, they they both, all three, uh, whenever, either Richard, would, would turn up to Centre of Excellence games on a Sunday win, rain or shine. And so I knew, I knew he understood what was going on. You know, he'd obviously done the youth team himself. Pete was, you know, really invested in it, really good guy. And, you know, the whole place was just for, for, for what we had at the time, it was so vibrant. And I learned so much about them. Uh, and, and and in terms of being on the bench and all that, I think it just gave me an opportunity to see how that was applied without being, the. I mean, he used to get me to two sessions warm-up sessions and he used to love me doing little army relay stuff because he used to like that competitive stuff with a bit of laugh at the beginning so I used to do some relays you're not allowed to do anymore uh, um, and it was great because I was involved in and astro- I thought what was what going on here I can't believe it this is like brilliant um, and then I'd be on the bench um, I'd listen to them talk and I'd be doing, doing my own little analysis seeing you know the old tally charts in a book and I just got so much insight listening to them talk and and. I think the level of respect that they shown me, uh I, I will never no. I mean, I was with Sean today having a cup of cup of tea. You yeah, uh, know, I still keep in touch with Pete and Richard, not so much Richard now, but I certainly have kept in touch with him You know, great guys, great guys. And uh Sean's a really, really interesting character to this day. Uh, I love having a conversation with him. Challenging, deep, thoughtful, respectful. Uh, I, I just, I, I, some people find it difficult to have a conversation with somebody. I love it. I love it. I come away every time going, I'm 60, I'm 67. I'm going, all right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, big moment for Sean, 2003 uh, playoff final. You were on the bench that day as well. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. What was the memories of that day and that season for you? Uh.
3: Well, I knew I couldn't stay if we, whatever happened at the end of it, I I, uh, drove there because I I was coming from Wiltshire. So it was easier for me to go that way and come all the way down here. So I knew whatever happened, I'd I'd have to be driving back. So I thought, right, okay, not, didn't think too much about that. Then we stayed in the hotel. Um, You know, we we had uh, training sessions on, I think we were on a rugby rugby pitch. I think it was doing the pre-match training stuff at the hotel doing some stuff. And I think one of the most, I've got to get this right, I think. So I don't think if you remember or not, but Warren Cummins had had an injury. Mm. And, uh, I think myself and Bernie had to sort of get him back to the physio, um, to then assess him, to get him back into the hotel, to then be ready for the game. Uh, that's one thing I always remember. Um, going into the stadium at that time, uh, the size of it, uh, I don't know, you know, a lot of it just went over my head. Is You know, this is like a, a final. Uh, i have been in finals at lower level stuff and that before, but this is the first time I've been involved in the organisation in a game of that level. And they did. And it's got, you know, it's, it's from behind the bench and it's in my study upstairs and I'm looking and, and I'm still there. And not all the time, but when I go in that room, I always look at it, it's been signed by all the players. And I look and I think, you know, I'm stood there in that game in that stadium, on that occasion, with those fans, with the results, with the performance, and I was part of it. It's one of those things, you know, a a young footballer, coach wherever else would just dream of. Certainly from my point of view, not being in the game at that level. And, you know, I've been at Coventry for a little bit and I've been at uh, West Brom a little bit in pro football, uh, which we didn't talk about. But, uh, yeah, that was just... you know. when you said it there, I'm just trying to reminisce it. It's just like, gone. I remember the goal. I remember the goals, you know, the euphoria. Yeah. Uh, and I, I still re- remember, you know, the calmness from Sean and, and Peter going mad. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry, uh, Richard, sorry, wasn't it, Richard? I, can't I think it. it was Peter Grant at the time. No, it was Peter, sorry, yeah, Peter, sorry. Just, just yeah, right. yeah, 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 it been Peter so, Grant. No, I can't, I, they're, they're the sort of, and then they all, you know, celebrators on the way back and I uh, 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 went on so it was, it was a big celebration I think um, they stopped on the services all the way back down I think <laughs> um
2: great times great times I must admit yeah. um you've seen over the development of a whole host of names that have broke into the Cherries' first teams um you know just to name a couple Brett Pittman obviously um you know, goal scoring sensation Sam Vokes, Danny Ings. Um, how do you know when a player is ready to make that step
3: into the first team? How did I know? Um, I didn't. Uh, people have asked me these questions about, you know, did you think this? And I could stand on a soapbox and say, yeah, I thought this and I thought that. You know, um, you know, Sam Vokes for one. Um the opportunity he had, you know, we had two strikers, I've spoke about this before, we had two strikers, uh, Kevin Bond was a manager, we didn't have anyone, we had the embargo thing, I think whatever it was, and we were trying to get a striker and couldn't, and I had these two guys, and I feel for the other one who remained nameless, but, you know, Sam had this calmness about him, and I thought the occasion, the Wolves game, you know, uh, his character, I think he'd deal with it better, you know, he went on and I have spoke this before, you know, he wore rubber rubber studs and was slipping, I thought, oh, my word. Um, But if I'm honest, if if someone had spoke to me at that time, just before that game, where do you think Sam will play? I'd have probably said I think he'll play uh, conference-level football, national-level football, given where we were at the time. And as you'll know, it's documented about opportunity, timing, those things are key, you know, the opportunity for Sam, timing of it. And how he applied himself. Um, Danny's is a different story. You know, he, he was not going to get anything. He was going to get released. He had the injuries. You know, I, I sort of Eddie hadn't seen a lot of him really, and we sat in the office to look. You know, we've got to give him something. And to be fair to Eddie, we give him the three months. We went to Dorchester. The rest is history. The abiding memory of them all. You know, Brett and, and, and Joe Parton and Josh McCoy, and I can go on and on and on and on. Um, is the, the sort of the it's a word I'll say, um, just the way they apply themselves and the, the sort of, the focus and determination and, and sort of dealing with situation. like I said, goes back to the point I made before when the demands and everything else, putting them in the, the hard times, how did they bounce back from it, you know, did they give up, uh, making things difficult, taking things away, uh, pun- punishments, whatever, uh, we couldn't find them for money then obviously, but different strategies and say, oh, how do you react? How do you react? So of course, if something goes wrong and they make that debut, for example, how will they react? Can they recover? And that might not sound like all the fluffy stuff you'd expect me to say about oh technically brilliant this and all that. You know, they were they were all very focused and, and determined. And look and they had all their own individual characters and Danny was right a right character in many ways. But all of them, all of them I can look back and go, all great guys really respectful, you know, be respectful about round people. You can see the way they engage with some of the first team players. The first team players would want to help them, you know, instead of some snotty nose young player who thinks he's having it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that for me, away from all the other stuff about where he was technically brilliant that, you know, they had their football attributes for sure. Uh, you know, they all still need to develop as players. But opportunity time and, and they took those both and grabbed them. Uh, you know, Brett was different. He was smashing in goals, you know, 40 odd goals a season in the youth team, and previous to that in Jersey. And you know, people say to me, Oh, you know, how'd you coach Brett? I went, I never, how can you coach someone to score a 30 yard, over overhead kick, a volley, a tap in? A, you know, I could, I, t- I touched on things, pra- set practices up, and showed him how good I was as well. And, um, <laughs> But he was like, you know, the only thing with him really was just getting his mind around that day-to-day routine. He was a different character in a different way, but great guy. Um, And how can you not take somebody who's who's putting 40 goals a season in the back of the net uh, at youth team level and continuing Mm -hmm. to do that when he plays the reserves? And then you go, right, you know, I remember Sean watching him, I think it was against Exeter, when I first spoke to him about this, look, you got to come and watch this guy. And he came come in, I think he scored, a, this I'm alluding to before, he scored a 30-yarder. I think he scored a volley and he did a tapping. And Sean's like, wow. Well, Not all the other stuff, you know, whether he run back hard enough or whether, you know, the goals of that area, Would you want to run back over the halfway line? I don't think so. he can be as close as close the goal as you can get. And it's about, by the way, it wasn't slow. I remember a first-team game, can't remember, oh, I can remember it, but I can name the team, where he went from just inside his own half and he was like... And I think a few people stood up and went, oh, you know, because his name was Chicken, because of his running profile. Yeah, yeah. He he wasn't slow. Yeah. I'm eulogising over a lot of players, and I can name a lot more. uh, So I'd never be clever and go, I think, you know, put him in there, he'll do this. Uh, I could say that with players who've not gone in there, and they've not been able to do this because the opportunity's not been there.
2: Mm. To switch it slightly differently, was there ever a youngster who you were monitoring or who might have been training um, with the youth team that got away and had a great career in the
3: game? Um, looking back from my, from my time, um, well, in a different way... uh, uh i trying to think now. Name's gone. Oh. I had to drive him to Shrewsbury. Oh. Striker. Oh. can't think now. But he was with us anyway. And he played, he was around the first team of 16. How bad is that? Oh. I'll come back to me in a minute. And... You know he's continuing the game, but he, he he went to, it's a different story. He he decided not to join. He he came out of the schoolboy program, and his dad took him to Portsmouth, who were then an academy. We were a centre of excellence. James Stockley, uh, yeah, and he realised the level at Portsmouth, and then he decided he wanted to come back with us. I took him back in with both hands. You know he's a physical, physical specimen, and obviously he's gone on and done it. But he was the one who went away and then came back. Uh, we've had uh, Jordan Rose left us, went to uh, Stockport, they're in the league, then come back out with, but no one I can put my finger on and go, you know, they've they've left us and and uh, you know, come back to you know, sort of people to question what we've done. Uh, okay. I can't think of them. someone might mention someone later, but not not I'm reeled in shock and gone, who yeah, so and so yeah
2: yeah, yeah, okay, um going back to Danny slightly um how proud were you to see Danny and Bailey Cargill make their Premier League debuts and their international debuts, knowing that you've played a part in their development
3: um i'm glad you I'm glad you said played a part because. You know there's lots of people who, who are involved in the process, um, and I think the whole academy or center of excellence, whatever stage you might have been, would take you know, look at that and go, Wow, you know, it's all worth it. You know, one player uh, playing at that level makes all the hard work for them as players and for us as staff worthwhile. So it's, uh, you know, I think Sam Boakes is you know, when, he, when he scored in the Euros, um. Yeah. You know, at my patio's door was doors were open, thankfully. And I were, as soon as he scored, I was out in the back garden, running around in a lap around the garden, because it was like, Wow. And then obviously for me, Danny played for Liverpool, so you know that was like wow, unbelievable. And it, you know, and people up there have speak very highly of him, and, and uh, still do at West Ham. Now, you know, great guy. Um Bailey, you know, did really well, you know, fifteen, sixteen, he was he was in and around me. Unfortunately, you know, he didn't spend enough time with me at the time because um, there was another situation that was on where, you know, he got pulled back into the centre of excellence, which is a bit narrow-minded. So, you know, I was really pleased because he could have gone the other way. Um, and, uh, you know, he's, he's done really well. He's had some decent loan opportunities. Uh, he's had some really difficult moments as well. Uh, some of his plays with managers, but, you know, he's still, still in the game, which is great.
2: Yeah, it's nice so that they're all still still involved in the game now. It's uh, um, there's been obviously a lot of local players that we've touched on, and um, brought through the system, but there's been oh, players. Sorry, sorry, I just sorry, apologies.
3: Oh. Sorry, the one going back when you t- talk about the personalities of people. Uh, going back to Danny was England thing. I was in Saint George's Park when uh, the age group team that Danny was in at the time on twenty ones was training. And it was a coaching seminar. <clears throat> and uh, part of the break, we were allowed to go around and watch the England team training. So I'm stood alongside, you know, big clubs uh, and all the players that were in those England, England side. Um, the majority of their staff were in this group here. And they had a break. Uh, the, the team had a break to have a bit of water. And Danny, Danny was the only player that took the time to run all the way across from the other side of the pitch to come over and shake my hand, and that for me said a lot of a lot of things about him and uh, his development and his personality and I everything mean, There's A lot of things. And there's a, a couple of a couple of guys went, oh wow, because they didn't really know, associate me with him from being a U team player. Ah, and uh, he, said, he said that was quite nice. I think one or two of them had the hump because. I think they had a player there who didn't bother. But it just, meant, it just meant a lot, not for me, but for him to take the time to do it in that situation. It shows a lot of respect. Yeah.
2: Um. So, yeah, so like um. with the local players obviously coming through, there's been players sourced from other parts of the country and, and other clubs over the years. I mean, for example, recently, um, Jaden Anthony, uh, Jordan Zamora, Mark Travers, Gavin Kilkenny. Um how pleasing is it to see these lads develop and you know, like with Jordan, he's moved on and and knowing that you've
3: played a little part in their in their career? It's the biggest plus for the I mean, obviously Mark and Gavin came from Ireland, so they hadn't really come into the academy system. Um so brilliant for them, two guys who had the opportunity. Uh, really good characters as well, I must say. So they had no real exposure to that. Uh, academy development, if you like, and understanding. So really respectful. Families are fantastic. And I think that the guys like Jaden, Jordan, and and, and, and others that are with us that have come from other clubs, I think, you know, the drop-off in football is quite large. And I think when players are released at 16, it's really difficult to get back in. And I think to see those guys, uh, you know, bounce back, if you like, you know, says a lot about them and says a lot about the academy. In terms of, you know, A, the player, the staff, but also the family, the buy-in, you know, because when, when they come and train with us on trial, as they do, I think what they see, how the staff apply themselves and how they see the place and the discussions we have with the family. Or maybe, maybe if there is an agent there, uh, which I, I didn't have in place before, didn't want the agent in those particular situations you know, the conversations you have and the education programme that gets presented, you know, we, we, we've got a good opportunity to sell ourselves because they could go somewhere else. You know, they to come from Arsenal to a, a Cat 3 little old Bournemouth. And I think because of their success, you know, now agents are more prominent then more more agents want to come and attach themselves to us because they see the, the pathway for those players that have come in and got released. You know, Nathan Mariah Walsh got released by three clubs uh, before he came to us. You know, and I think he lost a lot of trust in what people were telling him, coaches and, and staff, because, you know, he'd heard that story before. So it's good news story in that regard.
2: Oh, OK. Um, the club is obviously known for welcoming former players back into, into coaching roles. Um, for example, you know, Sean Cooper, Tommy Elflick, they're now part of the first team set up um Alan Connell, Andrew Sermon. I believe Juan Cummins is still coaching at some level. Isn't um, he? He's not he, no, he's he's left us now. He's left now. Um how highly do you rate these guys that are still associated with the with the coaching setup?
3: For me personally, I mean obviously not not Tommy so much because and, and, and not Andrew so much because he came in latterly but you know Sean Allen uh Gaz Stewart Mark, Mark Mosley for example you know, there was a, there was a reason for getting those ex players in, um, because there was a little bit more of a buy-in from the club. But it was them also appreciating the job. You know, it's not an easy job. You know, you, you you're in every day. You you're working every day. They're not like his next player, where they're finishing at lunchtime or just after, and you know, then they got to do all the you know the uh, the player information stuff they have to do after training and the session preparation, the weekend work, the nighttime work, training. To, to try and get people to come in and do that who've been a professional football player <clears throat> and the relative money at the time, because obviously Sean and Alan that come in part-time initially, as Gareth did and Mark. You know, you think, well, how, how will they approach it? What will they be like? But what I've got to say is those, those players, those uh, ex-players I mentioned earlier, minus Tommy and, and uh, Andrew, is I, I spent a bit of time listening. I may have spent a lot of time with them in the dressing room as first-team players and just listening to them and looking how they engage and all that stuff. And then when they used to come up and watch, so like I think it was uh, Sean used to come up and watch Alan and uh, then maybe Warren would come up and watch Sean and Alan when they were in, and then they got the buzz and they realised how much each of them enjoyed it. And the what the thing for me which really struck them is, is transitioning from being a pro player and coming in and working with other members of staff that are not pro footballers or from different disciplines and 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 working in a very heavy, demanding time uh programme in terms of hours and everything else and the commitment and sharing information and knowledge and and accepting who everyone was was for me a really vital uh ingredient for me at the time to be comfortable enough to say, look here, yeah, okay. You know, and they've got the knowledge of the club, you know, they've got the respect of the fan base, they've got the respect of the players because of how, you know, where they played and the level they played at. So it was a good fit, good, good fit, really. I think I used to get annoyed a little bit when people call it "job for the boys" because, you know, I'd ask some people to come in and try and do that job. Uh, it's not nine to five, and and the money, you know, uh, at the time and even in some ways now is is not, you know, not great. Uh, and each one of them has has moved on from Alan to under 12s to under eighteen to under 21s From Sean, uh, under fourteen, say thirteen, wherever it might have been to then uh 23s to first team and you know carl fletcher going back as far as that you know 18s with me then 23s and out and then back in loan manager and, and i think to have that rich culture and, and more importantly those type of people in the building uh yeah it's brilliant i mean you know i'm not going to dismiss tommy and, and andrew because those two guys since they've come in the building they've been exactly the same i mean obviously i know them as players and you can tommy Tommy on the pitch and he was always very respectful for me as Andrew was. And, um, you know, they come in the building, they've asked me for information and stuff, and they're not up themselves. Uh, great guys. Um, and that, that goes a long way for me. Um, you know, you know, when I, when I left recently, you know, Tommy sent me a text saying, no, make sure you come into training and watch training and everything was like, that. there's that level of respect that you don't forget. Mm-hmm. Um, So, yeah, I'll keep in contact and great guys. And I think that what was resonating to me is, and and they've developed their coaching skills as well and shared off each other and, you know, gain insight from other coaches who, you know, haven't played the game. Uh, I think it's a really rich learning environment and they've learned and, and, you know, they're they're all progressing.
2: Mm. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see uh, how uh, Sean and Tommy progress with the first team and, and um, Drew's,
3: Drew's just come in recently and he's been he's been like he's been here for, for ages he's great you know he's been great with the, with the players sorry mm. no that's fine no no worries um
2: just staying with the first team for a second if we can um you've been caretaker manager on a couple of occasions um firstly alongside ex-goal Golkin coach Stuart Murdoch um and then when paul groves was sacked um did you ever fancy moving away from the youth setup and taking the hot seat?
3: um do you know what if, if i if i look back now i would probably have said yes i would i would have probably liked to take in the baton if you like um and that's purely because i'm now the age i am and i can't look back and and look at what i might have achieved you know i did quite well at non-league you know i never i never finished out to have a top four uh, Got trophy semi-final one promotion one team I had the highest point score in the league. First time they've ever been promoted. It's still the record home score: 15-0 against a team. So I had a lot of success relatively at non-league. I had a, quite a lot of success in the military, uh, coaching-wise and managing-wise. And and then if I, if I can say, uh, you know, although myself and Stuart, I think we had seven games. I think it was we, we only lost one. All the all the rest were draws. So or it might have been six lost one, but you know, all the rest of the draws. So we, did, we didn't lose a lot of games and we but we couldn't change anything. Frustrating thing was that we couldn't change things because it was week by week by week and we were worried if we change things, no one was going to come in the building or was there going to be someone coming in the building. So it was only short-term, short-term short term, and we couldn't really put a plan in, but, you know, uh, Stuart was brilliant. Uh, then I had the game against Bristol Rovers, I think, in the cup where we won and, you know, that, that went down. So I had this thought about, you know could have do it but ultimately I I invested so much time and I got so much support from Brock and Hurst and you know what the players were going through I felt it was my responsibility going back to the army it was my responsibility and duty to follow through because that time the plan hadn't been anywhere near where I needed to be and I thought if I move away from it what will happen Because in football, and and you you know you're an avid football fan. If you look at some clubs, they can go from there to there in a season, in two seasons. And I had no um, desire to see the youth team go that way um, because that can happen. So I relinquished that opportunity. But I look back now and go, what if? Mm -hmm. But you know, I've had great memories with what I've done. But I would have liked to. (laughs) <laughs> um,
2: just staying on the subject of like changing manager, when managers get sacked and leave clubs, how does that affect um, youth team players and, and academies? A different manager coming in. Do
3: you know what it's? Without being flippant, I I haven't felt a concern for what is going to happen. Even, even in many ways, the, the sort of when we get relegated, you know, we come out with Premier League, and we come the Championship, and you know, the support from the board uh, at every point. You know, um, I, I would like to think that I was quite demanding in many ways to what I wanted, and respected everyone for what they were doing. But uh, I think I must have annoyed them to bits, you know, trying to keep things in place and trying to raise the levels. And and the budget we had was was brilliant. And but you know some clubs are worried about it i think i think what kept us glued together was the, the personalities around the club you know the the, the ex players that were involved the longevity of the people that had been in place you know what would 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 we all would would we implode because of a relegation with all these people working together and then what we were doing in the academy was for, for where we were as a cat 3 you know we were producing players we were getting you know i think you know, was it last season? I think it was. Um, you know, although the Premier League didn't jump on it, I think we had like eight players in a in a squad for a, you know, a, for a Cat Three club. So we were producing, we were punching above our weight, um, without being flippant. I never felt, you know, the concern. Uh, without being, you know, sort of, bit sort of laid back about it, I thought it was never, 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 never had those conversations. And you know we 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 remain we kept a, a philosophy and a style uh, of play, um, and we bridged the gap with the twenty three. So uh, it would take quite a lot to then sort of you know other than going cat four or you know a B team or something like that. Uh, and obviously we've got where we've gotten now in in, in the cat two. So you know it, it, I've never felt that that worry personally. Uh, Had some hard hard conversations about, you know, reviewing the budget and can you trim this bit and trim that bit? And you do, you know, like any any business. Sometimes you have to cut your cloth.
2: Hmm. Well, if we could just change the subject slightly again, Um, if you can cast your mind back to the minus 17 season, um, working with a young Eddie and a young JT, what qualities could
3: you see in them at that time of their career? Um lots, lots really. Um uh, the way the guys were together. I mean obviously you know that they, they played in the same side together, you know, JT would, would, would be the one thing that struck me about Jace is that he would he would question, you know, which would I didn't really think about that when he was playing, but he would question like when he was with Jimmy Quinn, he questioned things. Uh I thought he'd be you know take things the easy way, wherever else, but Going back to the point you make, I remember when Ed, Jace and uh, Steve Purchase and a few others did their coaching courses with me, you know, uh, they were very detailed, very committed, didn't expect a given. You know, they were thinking about the session, thinking about the preparation, thinking about the impact on the players, giving the feedback, which sounds straightforward, but a lot of people don't think about that in that much detail Uh, and the plan and preparation stuff, um, you know, when I did. When I did the sessions, you know, the, the way they interacted with the players and things, and you think, you know what, you'd want to play for them, you'd want to work for them, you know, and that's very important. That's important. Uh, you know, and Ed would be very, you know, very firm as well, uh, very stern, uh, which is great because he, he wouldn't let them out. that fit in me, you know, that's the way I would like to be working. You know, people, players knew where the level was and knew, you know, and at the same time, he'd be arm around you and, you know, he'd stay in, you know, work with the players after after training very meticulous jakes was the same and they were a great team together steve purchase you know is involved in that group as well and they got a great team that obviously you know they've moved on now to a different sphere and you can see those traits and those those sort of ingredients at that time and the hunger to achieve and the willingness to to analyze and, and work with players and develop players and, you know look you know they were they they were all due respect they played at, at a level and I think they knew how hard they had to work. And I think they knew that they had to get the players they were working with to work as hard as. And some of that was making sure that dressing room was on point. You no know, no shortcuts. You know, the minus 17, I always remember it, you know, some of the players that came into that team that were played in non-league, you know, and they came in with a hunger. And that resonated around the changing room. And some of the more experienced players probably were thinking, like, oh, I'm not going to let this lad you know, get on top of me i'm I to match what he's doing because he's doing it and it just you know it was like a, a ripple effect so the whole environment changed and uh you know the little in, little intricate things ed did in terms of paying for stuff or bringing different aspects of things into the building um has certainly stood him and, and the football clubs he's been involved with in good stead i think he had a great learning t- uh, experience at burnley i think you know for all the right or wrong reasons, I think for him to go leave us at the time he did to go there and explore a different club, different culture, different players, different experiences, different results, different outcomes, different challenges was probably exactly what he needed uh, to bring that back into the club to go then where he went. Uh, you know, uh, it would mean him had some head-to-heads about a number of things when he came into the academy. You know, you know he, he was sort of. Uh, saying about stuff and I was saying about stuff we got loggerheads with each other, but you know I respect that I respect that and uh you know we 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 keep in touch every week basically in some shape or form um and uh you know to see where they are now what they've done is pff, unbelievable but well, it's not unbelievable because it seems like it's not she and I wouldn't want to say i I knew he would do it, but you knew he would be successful by what he does,
2: yeah. Yeah, definitely a, definitely a future England manager. I hope, um, but uh, would be interested to see if that if that does ever materialise. Mm-hmm. Um, can you uh, ex- explain going back to the academy setup? could you explain a bit about your last job role, um, head of player progression? Exactly what did that entail?
3: Okay, so a couple of things really. One, I wanted to uh, provide an opportunity for who who is now the. Academy manager Sam Gisborne so that was an opportunity then for him to move into that because the Academy managers job is now more operational administration and and that type of the, the, the sort of uh, environment it's not something that really excites me overly um, you know and, and the, the other area was that the, the need now for a better process for the the older players you know players coming in from 16 to 17 from 18 into the 21s and for players that are going to get released at 18 or players getting released at 21s and then trying to get a, a bit more of a joined up approach when the players are here not when they get released when they're here and basically look at their progression uh, age group by age group and uh, the transition and when they go and go on loan uh, that experience you know, ha- having the time to have because it's such a busy environment sometimes we don't have the time to talk about stuff that may seem very relevant uh, because everyone expects them to turn up a train and train work hard clean the building up and go home and then the next day and then do analysis so the time to spend with individuals is not the great so we had an opportunity to try and put that little program in place and um, he is with <coughs> carl Fletcher on the loan side go and watch him on local loans if the train with the first team you know speak to the, the coaches at the first team or the manager at the first team and you know the thing for me is that sometimes young players when they go over the first team or a young player steps up an age group they go like that and then the coach goes oh wow but then they go back to their age group and they go like that and for me it's this is is the gap that's there so being a bit realistic about okay look if they're that far away the probably the chances are limited but if they're that far away from that level then they've got a better chance so what do we need to look at And, and taking that information back and then presenting it and saying right okay fine and get and understanding a little bit more about the character and the, and the final bit of it is when they're getting released is that discussion around prior to that if prior to their knowledge about focusing back on the education focusing on the what ifs uh, which we've always done but they still will turn and say i want to be a professional football player so it's a hard conversation to have um, but then, when when you get through the re- release process, realities there, and they still want to get into a professional club, and then that's still difficult because there's other clubs who are releasing players exactly the same time. There's other clubs who've got their own players in. that They're thinking about releases, and their own play and their own clubs are bringing. Players. So it's it's such a difficult thing to navigate, and it, it, you can only understand what it's like for the player and the family. And the staff getting affected by it. It was more about the players, so it was more about having a joint approach around that, and then monitoring those players, and then supporting those players for a period of time, which we did anyway. You know, we we always kept in touch with them. But you know, in the time I did the job, there was some of the players who said thank you, shake your hand, I've had a fantastic time, I'm cracking on, which is great. And if in a year's time they want to know about something, a course, or can we access this? Can we, uh, they hopefully will come back to us, and we'll go. Yeah, of course, we can. So it's it's like it's a, it's a process for them to have, and some of them want it, some of them don't. Um, making sure that support network's there. So if they find it really difficult, we signpost them to Sport and Chance, which is you know a charity for sports people going through different types of problems, and uh, we've got mechanisms in place that support them um, because you don't want the situation to happen and that happened with that poor guy and City. Um, so. Yeah, the, the player care side of it now is light years ahead of, of where it was, and that's purely by the finance attached by the league, Premier League, and uh, the numbers of staff that are now around it to help those players through.
2: Okay, that's an interesting insight to, to that role. Um, if we could touch on the category system for for a second, how does a club's academy get audited, and what do the auditors do to determine? what the club is doing
3: right and what it needs to achieve the next level up. Oh, well, okay. There's two, there's two, uh, areas I would like to talk to, if, if you're okay. Yeah. Uh, one, one was the initial audit, which was in 2012. So I was fortunate. Well, I left here in 2011, which was unfortunate. And then I, I struggled to get a job. And then, uh, the premier league engaged with a company called double pass, which is a Belgian company. And they were doing the, the audits in Belgium. Uh, they were doing handball in Finland, um, they were doing audits in Germany I think wherever. Um, and they had they had this like star thing that they attached to it and the Premier League had discussions with them but they were an independent audit company so I was fortunate enough to get employed with them uh, we put together the initial audit programme which was basically on an audit tool, it was like a, 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 a tool, IT tool on a computer and it was all criteria stuff and it was basically to benchmark every club in the country and then gauge whether they were a cat three a cat four cat well it wasn't a cat four to start with a cat three cat two cat one based on numbers of factors uh, facilities finance uh, staffing levels they were the three main things and rules to a degree so we had to go in and then basically it was like ripping open the filing cabinets and pulling out the file and it was it was really going right deep a lot of clubs felt it really difficult, really challenging, but it was probably the best thing that happened to football clubs in in the academy process, and I think a lot of it filtered into the senior side of the club because it had to be lined up. So we were into everything, you know, sp- to speaking to the manager, the technical director, all the coaches, all the sports scientists, all the educationalists, the part-time coaches, watching training, watching games, and then we were putting information into the, the audit tool and then it give you a score and that would be the category. So that categorized them back in 2012. Uh, a lot of clubs complained about the bureaucracy around it because they felt they were being, it was invasive, uh, too much documentation, which I would agree. And now the Premier League have relinquished the contract until the pass and the Premier League do the audit now. And the audit now is apparently a little bit bureaucratic, but they still want to sort of load loads of documents. And it's based on compliance and which are the rules and then the standards that are set. And then some safeguard and type uh, safe to operate. So are you safe to operate? You know, recruiting staff, safeguard and stuff, and everything else. So it's three areas, and then you get you get graded on um, where you fit in terms of you know sort of levels of uh, achievement in your category, and then you get a report, and then you've got to then do the action plan on the report, meet the action plan uh, outcomes, uh, get over them, or you get reassessed and um, some clubs now because previously no one really got moved out of anything um that some clubs have lost their category so for example redden were a cat 1 they they basically had their license suspended and then they just got cat 1 again so there is now some actions being taken on clubs who don't uh, uh sort of do the particular requirements that or, or or breach rules for example so it's monitored very well and uh i think if I'm honest, I think the EPPP, the audit, the initial audit, has probably taken the whole academy process and some of the England younger teams to a different level because of the numbers of staff, the quality facilities, and and the finances attached to it, and and the experiences that these young players get now in the Cat One, Cat Two, Two teams.
2: Yeah, okay, that's interesting. I I've mean, I I've I never. Had an idea really on how the system worked and how things got audited, but that's a that's a really good insight. But basically,
3: qual- qualitative and quantitative analysis was the first one. E- even the budgets, you know, we had all the budgets and where how do you spend it, where do you, and, it, and it was like you uncover a lot of stuff. Uh, uh, and I think it was for the first time, for probably ever, that clubs were accountable.
2: Yeah, no, it's it's fantastic to learn to learn on on how all that.
3: So two, right. two, and half,
2: two and a half years. Uh, I had a great, great time. Ah, yeah, that's just great insight there. Um, I don't know how much of this question you'd be able to answer, or or if any at all. But um, how do technical director Richard Hughes and his assistant Simon Francis
3: interact with your role and the academies? Um, yeah. So I when uh, when I, I move roles. you know, Richard and Simon are the people that I liaise with um and we would in terms of the, the audit process there was also required to hold technical board meetings so obviously uh richard and simon hold sort of technical director roles as well so we would convene those meetings where you know ed would be in there richard would be in there i would be in there jason would be in there uh neil blake would be in there and then we talk about specific academy stuff first team stuff and everything else um and then simon's come on board and then my role changed so we talk about the loan players, um, the progression of players that we have in the building. So in those particular meetings, the, the, the coaches at those age groups, 18s and 23s would come together. We'd have pre-meetings and talk to about the players, where they are, what level they're at, also what players we might be releasing, also what players might be on the radar. And then we talk about that process for those players who either progress through the pathway into uh, the next age group or actually you know, having to be released or what ones we, we would target for loan Loan clubs in 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 um, in liaison with obviously Carl Fletcher, uh, and then I would have instant meetings about certain situations. You know the cat two thing, for example, where we were going, um, and so that that's that's sort of the way. Uh, in a very short synopsis of the way it worked. Ah, okay, um, so just touching on Carl
2: Fletcher there, as as his loan manager role, um, how important is that role within the academy setup?
3: It's it's key. If I'm honest, you know, when you, if you speak to players now um, historically about their journey and they talk about the loan, you know, they will probably, no player wants to go on loan, I don't think, because they see themselves being detached from the first team and out it's like out of mind. So I think keeping, monitoring it and keeping on top of it is vital. Uh, If the players do go on loan, knowing that someone's going to be following things up, you know, having conversations with the clubs that they're at or they're going to, is it the right fit for that player, you know, the style they play? Are they getting the right information? Do we get the right information back in terms of, you know, what level of sports science access that they got? You know, what their running stats are? Are they going to come back into the first team? Or, you know, the 23s at the same level of fitness? If that level isn't right, the impact on it. And then, you know, the conversations around how the player navigates that loan process and how they interact with those players is an important communication tool for us to use. Uh, where we didn't have it, it was a bit, little, little bit shotgun uh, ad hoc. You know, and Carl's devoted his time to getting out to see as many players as he can. And I was helping him on a local basis, going out to the local loans, you no know, plural towns or Weymouths or uh, Wimborns, and that and making sure I kept an eye on the players here. And then we write reports back uh, about the players' uh, performance. Uh, and again, speaking to the coach or the manager, um, so we had an insight into what the player's behavior was like away from us which i think is important <laughs> and did the players interact with the players in uh, that other team you know it's interesting i spoke with a couple of players in the job we were talking about before and i've said i said to them like how do you enjoy the loan oh, i didn't particularly like it and you know, so, unfortunately some players will make every excuse up about why the loan didn't go well and maybe not look in the mirror and look at themselves um and they've got to be realistic about that side of things as well but also, you know, I spoke to a couple of players and they go, I said, well, you know, who who did, you, you know, how did you get on with the players and all that? And I didn't really speak to them. I went, what do you mean you didn't speak to them? I said, you know, you, you're playing with these guys and you're in the dressing room with them. Do you not sort of have conversations about, you know, what, what you think you do well or no, not really? I said, but, you know, you're going in from, a, I don't know, say if you're 19, you're going into a men's dressing room. And the one thing they're going to be looking at is you're an academy player is whether you're up yourself because, you know, you think you're a bit of a, you know, big-timer. So you've got to, you know, and these are these are sometimes, in the majority of those age groups, they're, low, they're non-league teams. You know, you have to go in there and, and fit in. Because what will happen is, quite likely, the players will disengage with them, because the player you're playing alongside could be the manager's best mate. You know, it yeah. could be the coach's best mate. So those conversations have got to be, you know, strong conversations about, you know, and, and it be accepted. So there's a lot of education around the loan that, the players don't quite understand and i think Carl, having had the journey he's had in his career and he's done the job well you know he, he, and he doesn't suffer fools at all you know i think uh, it's a it's a vital pivotal part of, the, of of the job the academy and and the join up between the first team and the academy
2: yeah okay that's um that's interesting insight i on how that works um people May think that you know academies is all about training matches fitness, but it's it's obviously a
3: lot more than that. How
2: does the whole project work for an academy player?
3: Um, How does it work? Well, there's obviously it's quite a rigorous schedule. Um, there's a huge amount of commitment from the families. For if you talk about academy players from nine all the way through to eighteen, say so eight, well sixteen, you know <clears throat> the schedule is four nights a week. It's, it's a Sunday, Saturday games, uh, two-hour sessions. You know, the players uh, at certain age groups live an hour and a half away. So that that in itself is like a three-hour consideration, you know, at the front of training, the back of training, on top of two hours training. So there's five hours in totality out there, life. You know, um, it's a lot, big commitment. Um, and obviously the access to what they've got when they come in, uh, the expectations of when they come in is... Um, you know, sort of pretty key, you know, they're, they're being watched from as soon as they get out the car, how they interact with people, uh, how they approach people. You know, we'll see how they approach training is important as well. Um, there's a lot of feedback. There's a, a lot of data uh, that we fill in around the players' performance. Uh, we put it into a uh, what they call PMA, which is a performance management application. It's like an online tool where all the players details, you know, what sessions they've done, what type of sessions they've run so there's a lot of detail around the player there, you know, um, there's, there's the, obviously the sports science, trainers side of things, and a lot of uh, workshops that we put on, informal education programmes, as we call it. So we've got player liaison staff, welfare staff, uh, head of education, player care. So education um, has always been, and I hope it continues to be a key part of what we do, because the Brock & thing from 2001, is a key part of what we've done and why we've got here and people need to be aware or staff need to be aware that not a lot of these players will progress where they'd like to go but they've got to progress in in life and a career so the education's foremost you know the informal education the workshops coming in and uh, doing sex education online stuff uh, Saint garden uh edi stuff equality diversity inclusive type workshops uh ex-players coming in talking about the perils of things gambling so it, there's a, there's a larger amount of workshops that are provided to to support the players knowledge and understanding social media one's really good you know we get the guy coming in who works with first team players and he pulls up one of the players social media from three years ago and says you did you said this three years ago look at the effect of that could have on this being done or he talks about players who are unknown about this situation where it went on so You know teaching about you know social media and when you become if you do become an established player how things so lots of education around that and then we keep a lot of interaction and communication with the schools uh you know the education department work tirelessly you know you know i'm saying not saying that because my wife's head of education but one of the reasons she came in is she was a tutor of brockenness college and she's been with us now for 16 years on and off and she's a football coach, so she understands it, uh, the interaction and, and uh, the desire for us to support the education program. Uh, she took a pay cut as well, by the way, when she left Brockenhurst College. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it's it's foremost of what we're doing because at the end of we're educating players in football. We need to educate them in life, and and we then educate hopefully the people, the good people, who become good footballers, and they'll continue to play football if they wish, and even if it's non-league they take that into that environment and they educate people in that environment about things. So I'm I'm hopeful that an under-18 player, if they seasoned an 14 player doing something out of sync, the under 18 player would, you know, give them a little bit of insight and making sure that all the staff, not all the staff, no matter whether you're part-time or intern or that, take responsibility for educating the players. So I'd like to think it's a really rich environment. Um we do the workshops with the players and the parents, we do inductions at the beginning of the season. We do weekly, sorry, we do reviews with the players, uh, sort of four times a year, a couple of times with the parents, a lot of times with the players, loads of analysis stuff. Um, we do tours when we're available to do it. We we vary the games program. Sometimes we'll play some Cat 1 teams. So we're trying to be, you know, trying to provide an environment which, which caters for the needs of the person in this environment and, and beyond. I'd like to think. Okay. Um, Staying with
2: the Academy, um, you introduced life stories Mm -hmm. into the the Academy, which I believe Eddie Howe has also implemented at Newcastle.
3: Um, What does this consist of exactly? Okay. So it's been in place, I think now five seasons. So we got to a point where we were growing as an Academy um, we were bringing more staff in. There. Like I said, we had an age group coach at the schoolboy program. Every age group was a full time coach. And uh, we had we'd gone from, you know, Joe Roach in t- t- two thousand and one, the only full time member of staff, to five years ago, uh, two thousand eighteen, with twenty nine full time staff. And we were bringing work placements in. And I just I felt we were we were looking for jobs. Uh, that were available, sending application forms out or the advert for the post, getting the CVs in, uh, selecting the CVs based on the knowledge, experience uh, for the role, bringing someone in, interviewing Matt Harrison. Uh, interview did really well, great, given the job, comes in, does the job, and you think, wow, great decision. And, you know, you, you, you know what you got. And then but other times, it doesn't work quite that way. And because the volume, of, I said, I, I, I'm thinking, I don't actually know enough. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm telling people that we need to know more about the players, but I actually don't know enough about the staff. So I put it to the the, the sort of uh, the hierarchy of the academy. It's look, I want to do life stories. And so what's that? said, so basically, life story. We'll talk about anything you want. You know, where you were brought up, your life, what you did at school, education, sport, interest, whatever, whatever. And Alan Connell. <laughs> He said, "Oh, do you have to?" I went, "Yeah." He said, "Can we just make it fifteen minutes?" Then I went, "Well, you make it as long as you want." So, but you're doing it on a PowerPoint, so we keep it and store it. And he went, oh, "Okay." Then. Anyway, I did my one first, and because I was sixty, whatever it was then, uh, sixty-three, uh, I thought I've got a lot of information, so I just did my bullet pointers, and it was like blah 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 I thought I don't want to stand on a soapbox talking about Joe Roasting this, this and the other; I'll bore them. And then Alan did his next. And he, he wanted 15 minutes, 45 minutes later. He still <laughs> it. But it was, it was brilliant because he talked about stuff that I'd forgotten about, but no one else knew it anyway, because they wouldn't have known, some of them wouldn't have been known him as a player because they'd come in to do, I don't know, a sports science job or something like that. And and obviously he's he's a bit of a legend at the club being through the period he went through. So, and then someone, another member of staff did it and he opened up about, you know, a family thing and he, he broke down on it 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 created this attachment this empathy between the staff and this person and someone else talked about uh, uh one of the, the girls we had in was brilliant medical sheep into australia doing australia rules rugby or something i'm giving it oh well, you know working for them and i didn't even know that so she was talking about that sport and then someone else talked about formula one and another member of staff went i, I love that but no what they didn't know each and didn't know so they're talking about that so anyway it went on and did that and then as I seen it grow, and and I thought it's probably one of the best things I've ever done to get insight into people and understand them more. And then I decided, when I handed over the role, I thought I'm going to do mine again. Um, and <laughs> mine went from bullet pointed uh, two pages of uh, whatever it was to 94 slides. And I basically, obviously, 94 slides is a lot on a PowerPoint, but I, some of them were just snapshots, bang, 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 bang. But I did I explained about where I was born, a little bit like this, where I was born leaving home um my mum my mum's situation lose my daughter at 28 and the difficulties of that and have a connection with them because I think it's important that people know that you've, you've got to sometimes open up and be raw and you know I, I you know someone has a bereavement in the, within the staff and I tell them, oh I understand what you're talking about and they go no you don't well now they know I do um and I think having that empathy is important and you know, uh, and I talked about the coaching and, and the journey, the football journey and being in the army and about exposure to sport. You know, I, I went to Japan and did judo. Uh, never done judo in my life. Uh, it, it's just like, you know, if if you truly are focused and you work hard and committed, you know, anything's possible, as I say. And and then and, and, and I shared it with the U-team players, um, the 21s, to sort of give them a sense of like, you know, you've got the ability you have is inside you here. It's in here and a lot of it's in here. If you can apply yourself in, in any way like this, I never knew at 16, 17, 22 I would achieve what I achieved. And yes, I've achieved it in, in small measures, but and I would never have known it, but I, I I now know the potential I had, but I didn't know. And if we, we want them to get progress as a footballer, and um, so I presented to them and, and and it was brilliant. And it's still carrying on now. And I think Ed, Ed, and Stephen that were aware of it because obviously Al did is, and they talk a lot. And I think Ed took a little snapshot of it, a few snapshots of it. And I think um, a couple of the players when he went into Newcastle talked about how good it was at um, inquiring about how they were and the family and and a little bit more insight. And I think it's just a brilliant thing to utilise. And I think anyone who's working in a environment that needs to know, need or truly wants to get to know you Know that the individuals that work with them and for them, I think it's a great way to break down some barriers and get to know people more because the subtleties around you know, someone saying to me about someone's parent or, or, or whoever's ill or has passed away, uh, they know I know and I can go and have a conversation. But it's just, and he, even with someone who's with the uh, one of the players, uh, he was aware of it and, and I spoke to him about a few things, it just broke down some barriers. And and it actually that it allowed them to open up a little bit lot more to me, uh, because how raw it was for me, you know the situations I've had and I was a single parent for for three years, so uh, I, I, I had I kids by myself for a period of time, so you know there's a lot of things that have made me more resilient and robust, and I think to encapsulate all that's why I want that's why I was determined to provide a vehicle for for young players to progress in, in whatever it was because I'd seen all the bumps in the road and and I wanted them to take advantage of the opportunity they had from, from the education, from the programme, from the interactions and, you know, the, the fact that they will gain long-term relationships with these players, you know, some of the players in the U team in 2003 will still be in contact with players now, you know, uh, this this far from 20 years away, so it's all that stuff. So it sounds like a bit of a thing story, but I think that's why I've, I've wanted to be so commitment, because there's been lots of things that have gone on. Uh, that have made me go back to the point you make, you know, have taken and have made me who I am, and I, and you know, my family uh, have, have been brilliant support of me uh, in lots of times, and and, and that's important as well. You know, respecting the people who who you love. Mm.
2: Yeah, I mean that that sounds like such a powerful tool. Um, something so simple, but but at the same time so powerful. Yeah. Um, I've got to say, this has been such a great insight, Joe. I mean, to learn all about, like, you, you know, the academy at the club and you as a person, it's been absolutely wonderful to sit here tonight and chat to you. But one last question. What does the future hold
3: for Joe Roach? Um, Well, great question. Um, I'm 67. Uh, Age is a number, as they I, say. I, I've still got a lot to offer um i'd like to try and add value to something I, i'm not you know i, I don't stand the but i don't think i've got an ego i just want to try and help you know i've spoken to a couple of uh, organizations that are you know a sort of grassroots based um to try and help in some way um i've spoken to steve butler about uh, the uganda cherries thing i want to try and help i just want to i just want to be active um and, and try and try and sort of support uh, people in in their endeavours about you know progression and and support uh people who are trying to help and support young players or young people i'm, I'm going to uh dorchester tomorrow i've got a charity uh bournemouth youth cancer trust which is a really small charity i spoke to them i'm going to meet them that they've had to move offices from pool. i'm going to meet them tomorrow down in dorchester they have a place they rent um i want to go and sort of try and help them if i can um and the close to my heart, in a way, I hope you don't mind me mentioning this, because when my daughter passed, she was 28, and I didn't know any of these types of organisations that existed. No one gave me any information. There was nothing from the NHS. Um, you know, she had a brain tumour. And, you know, this, this charity looks after players at the same age range as, you know, Youth Cancer Trust. So 16 up to wherever else they come down and spend some time away from the family and I want to go down there and uh, they're not down there now. They only come down periodically. I want to go down there speak to the organisers and and try and sort of offer some support, even if it's driving the minibus for them. Um, I just want to keep sort of uh, engaged and active with people because I, I, I'm a people person. Mm. Um, and, yeah, if I can do some coaching or managing uh, something, that that would still you know be something that excites me because I think I've got a lot to give in the coaching field. And even if it's helping mentoring somebody, and, can, and maybe going round and talking about the life story, going round to clubs if they would have me and talking to the players at 17 to 18, 20 about this type of you know, environment, because I don't think many people that we have in talking about the workshops we had before not many people, no, I don't think we've had anybody in who's been an academy manager, head of coaching a youth team manager, reserve team manager, care manager, system manager uh, head of play aggression uh, who's, who's done this type of role and understands it for as long as I have, so mm-hmm. I've got something to offer to try and give to, to clubs, the staff at the clubs uh, and those players a little bit of insight uh, to, to help. them. Look, I, like I said before, you only need to uh, inspire one person and I only need to help one person and, and my job's done.
2: Well, that's a fantastic answer there to finish off with, Joe. Um, yeah, thank you for joining us tonight. Um, it's been an absolute privilege to sit here and chat and learn about you and, and learn about the academy system at the club. And, um, yeah, wish you all the
3: best, Matt. Matt, I, I am really humbled and uh, I'm, I'm privileged, and I really appreciate the opportunity for me to come and you know talk about some things that hopefully, uh, you know, if you, any young players have ever watched this or else, be inspires them to to focus on the ability they've got. And, uh, it, it's been great me having the opportunity to speak to you. and um, Really pleased you asked me. Thank you.
2: That's really great. Cheers. Well, I hope you guys have enjoyed that as much as I have. Um, it's been a great insight learning about Joe as a person, um, obviously, through his military background and how he's transitioned into club football and came to Bournemouth. And has obviously helped develop the club in many ways, even being involved with the first team. But, you know, it's been a great to get a real insight into how the youth system, the old school of excellence, youth system, and now the academy works. Um, it was a real privilege to sit down with Joe tonight. Um, and I hope you all enjoyed it. Uh, stick around to the channel. Um, obviously, we've got our weekly podcast, Cherry Picking, um, where we discuss things all AFC Bournemouth. And of course, we'll have more of these evenings with um, coming up very soon. So stick to the channel Um, until next time up the cherries.
0: Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's.
3: Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com/pack for free shipping and 365 day returns.
0: This podcast is proud to be part of the Talksport Fan Network. Talksport, powered by fans.